How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 236. Welcome, everyone, to part one of Barbenheimer. Of Barbenheimer. There it is. Time. Our There's first two-parted episode, Zeke. <laughs> it is. It is. Obviously, we had a monumental uh, weekend that passed on Thursday. Yes. Two massive films dropped. Mm. The world is... The cinema world is slowly falling apart. <laughs> um... And it yeah. is, yeah, it is ironic, isn't it? It is the world of cinema and Hollywood's has falling truly apart, blown up. but uh, has blown up. Is uh, I don't know how to continue that pun, but uh, <laughs> no. but then at the same time, the box office is uh, absolutely doing tremendously, which is yeah, it's a weird juxtaposition, isn't it, with all the strikers and the mm. it's the, almost uh, like original films mm. uh, that genuinely intrigue people, yeah. produce more money. Wow. Who'd have thunk it? <laughs> Jinx. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, yeah, lot to talk about. Before we do any of that, Zeke. Yes. How, how has your week been? Hollywood aside. Um, look, I think it's actually been really good. I've mm. actually watched a lot. Nice. We are lucky enough being um, obviously a teacher of an Anglican school. You get three weeks in your Ooh. term two holiday. So Lucinda and I, both being Anglican schools, got an extra week off. Oh, is that really well? It did work really yeah. well. It meant a lot more, like, we obviously, because we don't see each other during the week a lot. Sure. Uh, yeah, you get a lot of quality time. We, you know, obviously went and saw both movies in one day, which was yes. a very exciting prospect. I don't think I, I've never done that before. I've never watched two films in a day. Yeah. Um, uh, definitely the first time I've done that, like, in a group setting or, like, like planned well in advance. I think one, during... COVID, I think I went to Luna and watched like two random ass films. I think I watched like Chasing the President, uh, the President, Chase, Chasing the Present, mm. um, which starred Russell Brand, I think, and then uh, Fantastic Fungi, like two random ass docos back to back at Luna. But I was like by myself, it was completely on a whim. Um, no, this was very different, wasn't it? And um, I did the same. I did the Barbenheimer on Saturday. So I was a bit painful to have to wait those extra couple of days, but. I think it was absolutely worth it. And, yeah. Um, yeah. Did, did, did Lucinda see both films? Yes. Wow. Very so good. So we shared dance teaching after, but we, we planned it so plenty of leeway. There was there was only a 15-minute layover between both films. Oh, very nice. Um, It was quite... One of the other benefits of it being an, a week off for us was mm. that none of the kids were around because most schools were already back and right, teaching. Right, of course. Um, which meant I went to... Uh, two screenings that were quarter full. Yeah, which um, was nice. Yeah, and everyone was top notch in both, which Good. was fantastic. I will, I will say. So on the Saturday, of course, there were way more children running around. Both in both screenings, perfectly fine in terms of no one on their phones. Everyone was very invested in the films, very good. But I will say, for my Barbie screening, that was going on. Everyone, Alro was the only one laughing, having a good time. Look, it's Ryan Gosling changing facial expressions. No one else was laughing. What's what the hell? Come on, guys, yeah. get with it. You're at Barbenheimer. Yeah, have a good time. Have a good time in one Gosh. of the films, exactly. And then have a deep think about. It. <laughs> well, that's what I was going to say. Kirsty did not watch Oppenheimer. She joined us afterwards when we watched Barbie. We had about an hour and fifteen minute break, so we yeah. got dinner. We got dinner during that time. Very good. So uh, no, it was a, it was a great night. Wore my Barbie shirt, so I'll have nice. to show you that photo. Yeah, nice. Well. Jake, before we mm. move into what we've covered in the week so far, do you have any fun trivia facts from the film of the week? 
Barbie. I do. And um, this this was not on IMDb. I was a bit proud of this one. If you do go on IMDb, it talks a bit about Midge, the character of Midge, who, of course, is uh, pregnant. And as the film sort of alludes to, but doesn't fully go into detail about the reason Midge was discontinued, the doll, of course, of Midge, uh, was to do with uh, Midge being incorrectly labelled as an unmarried pregnant teen, uh, which was never meant to be the case. She is meant to be an adult and, in fact, married to Alan, who was also a character in the in the Barbie film. And, I mean, the, just the box wasn't clear enough about that, so all the controversy arose and yada, yada, yada. What I thought was most interesting about Midge, particularly was her casting with Emerald Fennell playing Midge. Not, not a lot of lines, no. if any at all. Uh, but I thought it was a nice little ode to the fact that she directed Promising Young Woman while pregnant. So I thought it was very appropriate casting. Yeah. <laughs> so well done. And a good and a, a nice little Easter egg for uh, you know your feminist theatre, mm. your feminist film um, theory behind there because obviously we had promising young woman on the show. Yes, talked about how we thought that was a very positive uh, way of tackling that particular you know that cinema of the other that sub that section of cinema. Mm. Um, and we'll obviously talk about whether Barbie sits in the same positive mm. uh, perspective in the second half of the show. What I found really interesting. Um, Obviously, there there are a lot of Easter eggs in this film, yes. and you've just pointed one of them out. But I did find it interesting the choice of font, and this one actually did surprise me. I always thought Barbie just had was kind of like a Coca Cola; it had like a timeless font that just sort of carried over time. Right. Didn't give it too much thought. The font that's actually used is the Barbie logo font from 1975 to 1991. We could argue oh. that this choice comes from the fact that. Most, if not all, of the major cast members were born within this time period, and oh, definitely would have been played with those from that era. I see. Um, with yeah. this time, including, uh, you know, obviously having Greta Gerwig um, mm. running the one of the flagships of this this film project. Yeah. So definitely a, a deliberate choice, um, which I found quite interesting. Um, I didn't realize they changed the logo. Like, like periodically, yeah. Interesting. Apparently, it was updated every generation. Oh, there you go. Almost as if I want the Gen Z Barbie logo. Yeah, which obviously, yeah, I guess there wasn't that nostalgia aspect. Is this film nostalgic? It would be mm. interesting to talk about uh, in the second half of the show. Yeah, of course. Before Excellent. we jump into that, Jake, have you caught anything else in the last week? I caught a couple things. Yes, it's ironic because I I caught pretty much the three big blockbuster or the big free summer blockbusters of this year, all within 48 hours each other, because not only did I watch Barbenheimer, and of mm. course, um, I'm not going to talk about Oppenheimer quite yet. We'll get yep. to that at some point, Zeke. Uh, the other one I watched was Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning Part 1. Very good. Now, this was tricky for me, because I well, we've talked a bit about in the podcast, you actually rewatched a couple of them recently, mm-hmm. some of the earlier ones, and I've only seen the first two way back when. I was... I reckon barely a teenager when I actually caught the first two. All I remember about the second one is that there's Australian dollars in there or Australian notes, and it takes place in Australia, I guess. Um, it's a very awkward film. <laughs> definitely appears to be the worst one yes. in most people's memories. Um, but I know the franchises seem to have elevated a lot since then in, in terms of the uh, reputation it has with stunt work and action choreography and all of that stuff. Mm. And I've always like wanted to jump on that bandwagon. I remember very well when Fallout was in cinemas. Pretty sure like you and Jack 
you would have went to have seen that in cinemas? With, with Jack Beck, yes. Yeah, yeah. I just remember the hype around it, and I kind of felt a little like, oh, I would love to catch up and be a part of that. And I know the the response to, to Fallout has been just exceptional, and I've heard many great things about it. And I've definitely looked up clips on YouTube of just, like, the fight scene in the bathroom, because it just all looks so great. Mm. So I was excited about that part of watching the new Mission Impossible in cinemas, and after Top Gun Maverick, I was like, okay, Tom Cruise, I'm, I'm with you. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. Anything you put out, I'll watch on the big screen. Fair game. I was a little surprised, and I don't know if the franchise has always been this way or if it's just this one. Uh, the general consensus is this is a bit of a drop-off from Fallout. Um, all the stuff between the action scenes, I was like, this is... Uh, Boring? Not Boring. Predictable. Uh, uh, the, the all the sort of espionage genre tropes are dialed to 11 all the conversations like the, the just like comically it feels like a parody of itself in a lot of ways it's like the the over reinforcing of like ex, ex, um expository dialogue and just like characters repeating over and over and over again like this is the mission no we can't do this we have to do this or just the way characters will have intense conversations and they'll be framed, like, above chest height, and they'll bring up the same object and just, like, hold it to frame, then bring it down, hold it to frame, bring it down. And it's, like, this feels, like, so overly calculated to try and be cool and tense. And it just came off as, like, so silly. Now, I'm talking about all the conversations, like, between all the action scenes, and there's one scene really early on where it's, like, a bunch of these... Um, you know, agents all talking about the mission mm. and, and a character walks in and it they're very meant to clearly allude that, oh, this is like a spy or some sort of character. He's not meant to be listening in this conversation. And the way they cover it, well, I was pissing myself laughing. I was like, this is insane. They just kept cutting to him like 74 times during this 15-minute conversation. It was so long. They just tried to push the tension for way too long that it became humorous. Mm. And he's doing this facial expression. He's looking around like... Ooh. And it's like, come on. Like, it got to the point where I was like, okay, surely they're taking the piss out of us. Yeah. He's going to, like, open the briefcase and pull out a sandwich instead of, like, the, the gas that he ends up throwing at them. And I was just shocked. I was like, are all the Mission Impossible was like this? Because it feels like a parody of itself. It's so silly. It was very interesting that, uh, because, yeah, I guess you, you haven't really picked up this sort of this installment of, of the Mission Impossible franchise. Yeah. I think they're definitely... One thing I, I did find was, you know, we're talking about the earlier ones, is yep. obviously watching number one, number two, and I think I watched the first 20 minutes of the third film, and then mm. it goes into Ghost Protocol, was it Rogue Nation Fallout. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Like, yeah. this block, which are all way more samey, in the mm. sense that I think all done by I the same director. I guess in terms of the style, you're right. Yeah, yeah. yeah like, whereas, like, it was a... It, obviously between them I mean De Palma's the first one and then yep. it goes to John Woo and then it goes to J.J. Abrams mm. and it was like direct auteur whiplash because you're getting right. these films that very are different so styles drastically different mm. and maybe you wouldn't notice I guess if they were years apart but definitely when they went to Ghost Protocol and then they've had these last three films I guess after Ghost Protocol they're all feeling a little bit similar but yeah I think we often get taken aback i think by the stunts um well that that was the highlight for me that's what kind of saved the film from being just like an absolute bore fest um and you're right they're, they're very practical and tangible and like the big car chase where um 
uh, you know, Tom Cruise is chained to, I, I forget, Hayley, Hayley Atwell, I think her name mm. is, um, who plays Peggy in Avengers and all that. Um, that was great. And even just like the, the codependency they have on each other survived the situation because they're handcuffed. But even just like all the car stunts, and especially compared to Indiana Jones that we covered a couple of weeks ago, mm. where it was just so like animated and floaty and fakey. And like compared to that, I was like, oh, this is fantastic. But like that that's what like 20 minute chunks of the film yeah compared to the rest of the film which was all again it just it felt so silly i think the marketing for fallout or all of those this block of mission impossible movies has been Mm -hmm. one of its real reasons why i think people really like the films is because you know when he did the scaling the the dubai tower yeah um hanging off the plane and all that stuff hanging off the plane or when he broke his leg on Mm. that jump and everyone's like kind of waiting for that moment in the movie where he does the jump and we're like everyone's like oh he broke his leg on that take and they kept it in the film <laughs> Everyone, yeah everyone's like almost, pulsating like oh I gotta like, tell yeah, someone yeah, like the fact <laughs> that weeks before this film came out they showed that this obscene stunt and then he apparently not goes even, on not even weeks times. like years yeah like they they showed like the full behind the scenes of that a long time ago and I, I think that kind of helped that when you actually get to the film, that kind of subverts it a little where he's about to do the jump and then he like pulls the bike over and he's like, wait, what? And then Simon pegs on the thing like, that's how you get on the train. That's how you do it. And he's like, are you kidding me? I can't do that. And there's like five minutes of back and forth before he's like, oh, okay, I've got to do it. Like that was subversive compared to the the videos of Tom Cruise. is like, let's just do it, guys. Let's go and do it. Yeah. So like, that's cute. And like aware that they do reveal it. Tom is more ballsy than Ethan. Exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and I thought that was kind of cute. But to your point, it's like I was like I would want to watch this film because of those stunts and because yeah. like this is what they're highlighting as I the think film. F- That's great, but I just I was shocked. Is the antagonist compelling or interesting in this? I couldn't even tell you who the antagonist is. So that uh, that I I think that was my problem a little bit with Ghost Protocol. It wasn't a very clear antagonist, right? Fallout has a very Henry Cavill is the antagonist of right. it, and it kind of works because it's like you know that's the height of Henry Cavill kind of popularity. It yeah, works. And, and and as we were going to the movie, because I went with Blake and he was explaining, he's like, okay, well I'm going to tell you what happens in Fallout, so you have like context for what's about to happen. And he's explaining me about like you know the head of this organization and Henry Cavill's role and like the big twists and this yeah. and that and this and that. he's explaining all this to me. None of it has anything to do with this dead reckoning, no. and that's fine, but. To your point, it's like, well, who's the villain now? Oh, it's it's this magical AI thing that also doesn't make any sense. Yeah. <laughs> they're Honestly, they're just action. They honestly feel like film. I think I've been saying this for a while. They feel like films that enable Tom Cruise to do something crazy. Like, they honestly and feel that, like... And that's fine if all the things that connect those dots yeah. also work. And Top Gun Maverick does it. That's fantastic. Yeah. But... And I, I, I feel bad for comparing it to Top Gun Maverick because they are different teams behind them. It's just Tom Cruise like associating them with his IP ownership mm. and all of that. I get that aspect of it. But the only reason I watched this in the cinema, despite not being up to date with the franchise at all, is because of Top Gun Maverick. Yeah. So there's like that standard that I wanted to adhere to. No, I but I agree. Yeah. I mean, I was genuinely frustrated with John Wick 4. I hate right, it. I really right. didn't feel good about it at all because it... it was such a paper thin story to enable action set pieces. And then obviously the creativity in some of those set pieces, you know, there's that top down shot that, Mm. you know, sort of one of the big marketing sequences. It's fantastic. It's a, it's amazing, but 
you sit there and go, yeah, but what else is there? Yeah. Like, what else What's am I the, getting with this? Where's the why? Um, yeah. Because I got a why and he's... I mean, and it's funny. I mean, that's a whole franchise set around a guy whose dog got killed. He went on this big <laughs> rampage for four films. And, you know, at the end of the yeah. day, Ethan has just always been perpetually on the run, working for the CIA in, in every film. That was that um, was another thing is there's two agents that are always, like, chasing him. They're always, like, four steps behind, like, all the other villains in the film, which I, I don't have context for, like, how involved, like, they are in the other films. But that was another moment of just, like, laughing every time they were on screen. I'm like, oh, and these two doofers. It's like the two uh, cops from Tintin. Yeah. Where it's like, ah, oh, they're funny. They exist. <laughs> they like, exist, exactly. Um, And that's sort of what will be happening. Like, yeah. I feel like th- that's why those films exist, is honestly, is, like, what can we do in an action spectacle theatre sense? Yeah. Um, well, you, you've just started playing Uncharted recently. Yeah, and it's like the first one to a lesser extent. There's not as many like set pieces, quote unquote, in the first game, but like a lot of those are also the same thing of just here are really cool set piece ideas. How do we craft a story around that? And Indiana Jones, they admitted the original Indiana Raiders, they wrote the set pieces and then they wrote the story around the set piece. The problem is you got to do a good job at doing that. Yeah, <laughs> and it, yeah. it sticks out. And when, we've seen it work because we talked about it on Raiders. Exactly. So. Goes so, to yeah. show. So I, I was I was a little shocked by that. I will watch Fallout and the others because I, you know, like I went with Blake and Steven. They were both like, yeah, no, this is a huge step down from Fallout. So I'm curious to watch that and kind of see how it compares. But um, yeah, even just like narrative stuff. Like there's things that Ethan does in this film that I don't know if it's just like part of his established character. They don't feel the need to explain it or contextualize. Mm-hmm. But it's like there are things he does. And I'm like, why? Like just... Give me anything. Why does he spare that person in that moment? Why? Why does he, you know, he and is it Haley Atwell? I think that's her name. Why? Why? Why are they so intrinsically tied together? Like, does he see himself in her? If he does, the film doesn't do anything at all to hint at yeah. that. But maybe, and maybe he doesn't need to. You know, I still gave it a three star review. I don't hate the film. I was just shocked by how much of it was gimmicky, silly. Yeah. It is what it is. It probably is. A, it's one of those films that you might even that that benefits with having people next to you that you're like to give like me a, that a group and just to have that sort of just enjoyment and awe mm. of spectacle. Yeah. Um, but yeah, other than that, I mean, I I don't blame that judgment. I I could tell you I've watched most of those films and right. I really can't tell you. I've watched them so out of order, but mm. it never felt like it really mattered. Right. Right. Like. So, yeah, they're just yeah. set piece films mostly. Yeah, and and the, yeah, that yeah, <laughs> end of end of that discussion. The only the only other thing I watched in the last week, not related to Barbenheimer, of course, uh, was earlier today, the first episode of the new and improved. Well, I don't have to say improved, but uh, Futurama's back, Zeke. Oh really? Futurama's back. Today was the first episode on Disney Plus and Hulu. So why is Futurama back? I thought they like finished finished the show. Well, it? well, that's the whole thing. Is like how many times has it been cancelled, and they've had to like write an ending to that series, and then it gets renewed for another two years, and they they do a bunch of episodes, and it's really fun. And they have to end it again because they got cancelled, and it just it just keeps going around everywhere. So I guess Hulu got them because oh, who was it last time? Obviously, it was Fox that started. Mm-hmm. And I know, I know the show was like notoriously expensive to make, um, which if it kind of kind of feels ahead of its time in that way. Where it it is a show that's quite expensive 
and and the scale is quite large because of all the space travel and the 3D models that they put in with the spaceship. Mm. And it kind of feels like the show that would get 10 episodes every couple of years now, but instead got like 10 to 20 episodes every year at Fox 20 years ago. So in terms of like, was it worth it for them to spend all that money on the show? Um, so it is that very confusing. Fe- I think Comedy Central got them. Yeah. And then now Hulu have. So it just keeps bouncing everywhere. And and they always do like they get ten or twenty episodes and they cancel again. Another ten years pass, another ten, twenty episodes cancel it. What? It's insane. And and to be fair, half of today's episode is just making jokes about that. But the actual story around it is based on well, this is the thing. It's been ten years since Futurama's and it had an amazing ending. It's had several yeah. amazing endings. So I was worried. I was like, God, they're going back to the well again. And they've never messed it up. I think Futurama's consistently great throughout its entire run. Um, so like, what what are they going to do now? And it turns out they have ten years worth of material now, since since it ended. I think it was twenty thirteen, in terms of uh, obviously the binging culture and television the way it is, and obviously now with the pandemic more recently, and there's all sorts of things going on. And, but none of the characters have aged. Uh, well, th- there is a joke about how th- they do a very quick thing to wrap up how it ended last time because it was sort of a definitive. They ended it last time like it's going to be a loop where Professor Farnsworth comes in and, hey, the problem that you're having now, I can fix it, but it will cause, like, a perpetual loop. Yeah. And the idea is that you just watch Futurama in reruns for the rest of all eternity. And that's kind of the meta commentary there. They very quickly were like, let's just write an excuse to get us out of the loop, and then now we've got new stories to go about. And they do do that joke of, like, oh, now we're in 3023, and even the calendar in the episode was July 24th, which I really appreciated. <laughs> Just those little details and, like, meta of, of, like, where their story is now. So they've technically aged, and they make jokes about it, even though they haven't. Like, the characters look exactly the same. They all sound exactly the same. Same humor, same era. You're not going to miss a beat in terms of the style and humor yeah. of Futurama. But I, I, I could not believe how good this episode was. And it started out wonky because this is like the binging episode. We're going to make fun of binging in this one. And it starts out like an interdimensional cable thing. Where it's like, oh, here's like the Black Mirror parody. Um, or uh, here's Head Lasso instead of Ted Lasso. It's like, it, I'm like, oh no, don't do 20 minutes of this. Oh no. And thank God they don't. It ends up interweaving into another narrative that was absolutely genius about the relationship audiences have with, well, television now, especially in the fact that studios have to prioritize quantity over quality mm-hmm. and and oh, it's absolutely it's absolutely brilliant and it feels like it was written yesterday just the way it interweaves with like the strikes that are currently going on yeah the fact that the writers are so spread thin that they're all basically dead and the person who has to take over the writing process is bender the robot i'm like it's brilliant it's so brilliant are you kidding me <laughs> So, so you don't feel like this is rose-tinted goggles liking a show that you've liked for I don't, a really I don't long time. think so, because I went in kind of sceptical, yep. a little worried, and I was like, okay. And I, I was laughing my ass off. And it was that little... It, there were so many like little nods to like film and television production, because they bring Calcolon back and they have to do more episodes of his show. and So there's a little bit of that, like inside baseball. Mm-hmm. But I was dying. I was like, this is hilarious. It's so clever. It's so witty. It's just as good as so, it's always been. So why do you think... If they've managed to just come back yeah. from seemingly nowhere and yeah. they've just sort of hit that sociocultural pulse of humour mm. straight off the bat, 
yet yeah. you would argue Simpsons has completely lost that. Oh my god, yeah. It's it's sad. So it's where so sad. is that how has that one managed to preserve itself? Is it because it has 10 years of content that it's able to catch up or how, how I, you... I think there's an element of that because what would you rather be would you rather be the show that gets cancelled every couple of years but is like just consistent and always that social commentary is always so sharp and witty and on mm-hmm. or do you be Simpsons where you're sort of tied to a 50s nuclear family archetype that just has to linger on and on there's no break there's mm. no rest they just kind of have to constantly come up with ideas it's kind of like what this Futurama episode almost makes fun of because without going too much into the details, there's a reason why they have to pump out content as fast as possible. Basically, uh, oh, I, just, I love it so much. I just want to talk more about you it. Can but... do, I mean, it's an okay. episode of future. I, I know, I know. It's, I'm, I'm excited because like it's back. Grew you know up, what I mean? With, you know, I'm the same age as you, and yep. I never really got into Simpsons at all. And then right. with Futurama, I did find Futurama way more funny than The Simpsons, naturally. Mm. But I've only ever watched like the the movies, like the, oh, interesting. The, the movies are great. The Beast of a Thousand. Oh, I find Beast of a Thousand so funny. Yeah, <laughs> the wedding <laughs> is just so good. <laughs> and I wish I had sat down. I think I've sat down and watched maybe like the f- first couple episodes of season one. And, yeah, but it's overwhelming how many. It's like with Family Guy. Like I used to be like Family Guy was the pickup show when it was in season six through to ten. Yeah, like, that's right. Family Guy had a few cancellations. You're right. Where you just like oh. There's an episode of Family Guy on the TV. I don't need to know anything. They're this like I'm just gonna watch it. And, yeah, I and guess that's the key difference. Is like Simpsons. They've been forced to just go on and on forever. It, it's just like a depleting life form in the writers' yeah. room of just like ideas and creativity, and even the voice actors. Like Marge, listen to Marge's voice in the newer seasons. It's sad. She sounds like she's just dying constantly. With a croaky voice, but with Futurama, like you cancel it and then you bring it back. There's like a new like fever. There's like an energy of like, oh my god, we're back and like we got pressure. Like we got to really do a good job and it, it's all really concentrated. I think that's really important. And what what I loved about this and this kind of ties into that Simpsons, even Family Guy. Now that Family Guy has had a long stretch of episodes without having been cancelled, yeah. it feels like just a depleting. It's, show. I think it's gone. I think yeah, we're long past the the prime years. Like I said, I I, I think the best years of Family Guy, what seasons four through about ten, right? Um, even ten, eleven, it's getting a little shaky there. But <laughs> I I still think like for me, I reckon the show actually peaks in like season eight, nine, which I know is not yeah. like the super popular opinion. opinion. Sure, it's like four to six normally, but right. I I think those. When they started to add in those little bit more canonical, the canonical stuff, I think right. it did work for a while, but um, not forever. Fair, no. Killing fair. Brian was the dumbest thing that show. Oh ever yeah, did. yeah. I remember that. That was all, that was around the same time that Futurama last ended, yeah. ten years ago. Yeah, but what I love is that they comment on that by having Fry. They they kind of write it in a way where he's like, "I'm going to binge every show that ever existed," and they have like this big suit that they they tie him up and basically that's how he binges the show is they they drill this thing into his head and he just sits and watches the clockwork orange sort of exactly yeah and just sort of consumes this content over and over again and what happens is that it alters his brain in such a way that he may die if he's removed from this stasis of binging the show so it gets to the point where he's about to finish the show so they have to suddenly create new episodes so that he can keep binging and it kind of feeds into that cycle of consumption that us viewers have kind of gotten into with binging culture. So now they have to write and and produce these shows as fast as he's literally watching them. 
and it gets really fun because they find ways to speed up the process and then that's where all the film set jokes come in of how do we speed up this process and the actors are robots so they start like delivering their lines at double speed and then they <laughs> it's just brilliant mm. it's so funny so I'm, I'm glad Futurama's back I'm glad that it it I loved it I absolutely loved this first episode so hopefully they got they got a vaccine episode coming up which I'm really <laughs> I'm really excited about it's gonna be good and yeah, no, great so stuff. You said it's on Hulu, so is that binge for us? Uh, Disney Plus. Disney Plus, okay. Yeah, so it's all set to go on Disney Plus, which is a shame because I was going, I did kind of talk about last week, is it cancelling Disney Plus? Yes. And now I'm like, ooh, Futurama's back, and it's good. Well, uh, Disney Plus is sure cancelling things. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Uh, R.I.P., was it Crater? Crater. Yeah, Crater. <laughs> Who needs 50 million? Ah, tax write off. Yeah, I know, right? Uh, but Zeke. Yeah. What have you been watching in the last week? Well, I'd like to say I, I've caught stuff that has made me feel as, as good. Well, I feel I'm in the same. Seldom to good was okay. probably what I caught in the last week. Fair enough. Um, I did catch a 2023 comedy that just came out recently. Tyler Spindle's The Outlaws. Ah, uh, um, yes. Yes. It was a couple, the, couple of weeks ago, wasn't it? Yeah, which is the latest Adam Devine uh, sort of wrought comedy mm. centers around. He is basically once again playing Adam Devine, this scrawny, <laughs> wow, slightly tubby, kind of pathetic human being. Yeah. Um, and which he does play that very well. Um, I, I do laugh. Like two out of three of the main workaholics cast are in this film, so oh, okay. it's quite funny that it's it, once again and and Pierce Brosnan and um, I'm just gonna double check this now. Pierce Brosnan mm-hmm. and Ellie uh, Ellen Barkin are oh, the outlaws. Right. Um, the in-laws who are outlaws. Um, <laughs> you look, just know that like, they came up with that pun. And like, okay, now we have to write an entire movie about that pun. <laughs> yeah, look, and I, I would say it's a very... You know, we're talking about these crass, orties comedies. I yeah. definitely think it fits into that. Unfortunately, it doesn't fit into the premium category. It's the one that you got every year that kind of made you groan. Um, right. Would have made a perfectly serviceable airplane movie. But um, and was a fine popcorn, uh, dead brainer film. But uh, odd pacing. Some of the comedy hits, not a lot of it hits. Not as much as the film of the week, which we'll talk about. Is there, there's a Blink One Eighty Two reference in it, isn't there? There is. There yeah, is I did. That came up on my Instagram or something. Like, um, okay. Yeah, look, it was it was it was fine. If you've got you've got nothing else on, it's a brain dead comedy. Fair enough. Um. Very similar to the 2016 mockumentary by Christopher Guest, Mascots, mm-hmm. which, um, curious one. I actually really like the premise. It was, um, like I said, a comedy mockumentary that centers around 20 participants yeah. who are mascots for small towns and regions across the world mm. who all go to this pageant slash competition. Kind of ties in with the Little Miss Sunshine. Oh, well, there you go. In that sense. Um, yeah, I think that the first 20 minutes, I was like actually really on board. I thought mm. the, the setup, what, there were things I really disliked about it, which brought my score well down. Um, wasn't necessarily, I thought some of the comedy was hitting, but they kind of go against the mockumentary office format. It has Gabe in the office. Oh, that's funny. In the cast. Yeah. <laughs> um, not that anyone really knows Gabe, let's be real. He's yeah, in those we don't know seasons. his name. Is this Gabe? Yeah. <laughs> Forcing his girlfriend to watch A24 horror films. Or... <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, Actually, it's... Ellie Kemper is in a new film. We'll talk about the end of the show. 
But I noticed her name come up. And you know what the funny thing is? This concept by itself, I never thought I wanted Will Ferrell in a film so much, but I thought I couldn't think of someone better in a film where people who mm. generally think mass... Like, the whole thing is they're all part of different teams. Some of them are from third-generation mascots who have to go against the, the A lot of the concepts mm. I actually found really funny. I was like, wow, this is a really clever concept. Like, there would be a conference where mascots would go and compete and it's like that thing but <laughs> did you see the one where the mascot ate that girl the cheerleader yeah. <laughs> that's great as that and, and there is an <laughs> the art form commentary, to it he's like whoa that's not right yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so i i good. in the first 10 to 15 minutes i was like oh this could be pretty good like yeah. this is a good concept and they, they had the mockumentary style and it was working really well i was figuring they were channeling that kind of what made the office great, yep. good timing and stuff. And then they kind of betray the mockumentary format and it sort of crosses that threshold where it's not... Like, off the office is so clearly a mockumentary. Yes. Like, everything about it, you know, like, even those scenes where there's those really tender, hardcore moments, like, between Jim and Pam and those earlier the, the seasons. The camera's always sort of... Super far away yeah. or at a weird sort of, like... Act, that like a scopophilic aspect to it. Yeah. The camera always feels like a character. Yeah. yeah, and after about, I'd say, 30 minutes, it starts to disappear a little bit, and then mm. it, by the back end, it's almost just like a drama film, and then it, the comedy doesn't hit at all. Like, it right. misses, it has terrible blocking, and, mm. and, and these are things that I think really do make or break a comedy it's such a fine margin for error yeah um and it's such a shame because i sit there and go man i really wish that a different group had been given not even a different group maybe a different just a different creative direction with the concept because i think the concept was was really interesting and maybe a bit more money behind it with with a better cast it would have like a cast that i think is more naturally comedic like you know, if you got people like the key, like you know, Key and Peele, and like there are so many actors that would work. Like Pete Davidson would be so funny, uh, yeah, yeah. being like this stoner mascot who just stumbles into success. And um, it's kind of like the opposite problem of the bubble, where like it was a good cast, but the but Jada Patel's direction was, yeah. And it's yeah, it's crazy, <laughs> isn't it? It's it's crazy. So I walked away. Yeah, not um. Not, not a fan not, of that not, one. Not a big fan. Um, the That's only other... I did catch two other things. Um, so I got a documentary. I actually caught two docos, but I, um, I showed Lucinda Fire for the first time. Oh, very good. Oh, what do you think? She loved it. Yeah. It's of course excellent. she loved it's it. It's great. It's so good. But watching it again, I think it's the third time I've watched it. I, yeah, I think I've legitimately rewatched this film like once a year. Yeah. It's so good. I, I still, in that last 20 minutes after everything settled, when he goes back and does another... <laughs> How that? Fi- I think that film's got to be a sure runner for a 2010s nom for a countdown through a yeah, decade. Yeah, um, it's it's baffling we haven't done it yet. Yeah, because I think it's it was it's, very early on in the very early on when we first saw been. it, like episode six or seven, even yeah. maybe even earlier than that. But crazy, yeah, never never got even those earlier episodes. We were definitely more flexibility where we could have uh, probably put it in there, and we just never did. Yeah. Um, but. I don't think a documentary has been watched by as many people and everyone unanimously likes it. Like, yeah. I've never met someone who dislikes it. Um, and I think it was a barometer for what has now become a very normal Netflix f- documentary format style too. Right. And, 
and also I think it was one of the maybe not the pioneer of the main camera put in the center of the screen but it definitely was one of those it, films yeah it was that, a very early one wasn't it um at least in this this generation of documentaries yeah. um i no, think i it's... think you're onto that i think yeah because it did feel novel at the time of just having like your subject directly in the center of the camera yeah. um there's a little bit of that reflective i mean you can like he- I, I from memory you can hear some of the interview questions being asked and then there's a little bit of that but you're right it feels so much more common now yeah, as opposed to like having them in the corner of the frames or like you know going by the um, what's it what's it bloody called the f- rule of thirds like, rule of thirds jeez I was yeah. blanking on that one um <laughs> the other and the other one I w- watched was uh, called the John Dow documentary twenty twenty the mystery of D B Cooper now it's a name that's not super synonymous with us Australian uh, no, blokes but uh, Prison Break fans. We've heard of the name. Oh, okay. So you have heard the name before. Yes. Well, um, it's a character in Prison Break pretends to be D.B. Cooper. Well, pretends, but then also gives the location of the money and is correct. Uh-huh. They find the money. So, the, holy crap, it was D.B. Cooper. <laughs> so, obviously, as you know, yes, D.B. Cooper in 1971 hijacked a plane, yep. walking out with $250,000. Um and the documentary was actually a really, really, and it basically went through the four chief subjects that, as of 2020, are the ones that genuinely have clout to, or at some mm-hmm. point have been believed to be D.B. Cooper. Um, and there is just this, what I find really interesting, and, and the thesis of the documentary, which is one of its positives, I think it does, um, it's only an 86-minute documentary, and it probably okay. could have been a little bit, even a little bit shorter. You could have even made it a tight 70, but... Um, what becomes interesting and which definitely warms you to it a little bit is how these four completely unique and distinct stories all mm-hmm. have um clout in why they think the person they think is db cooper is db cooper right and it was you know it obviously talks about the socio-cultural impact of this guy basically successfully out doing the law mm. um and with no remnants of the money or anything being found for 10 years after and then nothing after that. Right. And it becomes this really interesting thing where um, it you just sort of kind of get fascinated with why everyone else kind of went down this rabbit hole thinking yeah. their person was, was D.B. Cooper. And, and kind of what that represents is that idea that we often try... And the real Slim Shady, please stand up. Yeah, but one of the big thesis <laughs> statements is how we often, yeah, we look for the extraordinary and stuff that's incredibly ordinary and mm. the fact that a lot of these people in their lives would have lost someone or something and then they used this absolutely extraordinary larger-than-life event to sort of rationalise aspects of it. And um, it was an interesting sort of consensus to draw at the end and obviously it leaves it up to the audience and the fact that as of 2016, I believe the case was shut like mm. unsolved shut like yeah. no one was was accused of it and and then the very next day yeah no, i'm kidding but it is, it's, it's also interesting how there were two plane hijackings within five months in 1970 yet mm. airport security didn't get good until 9-11 interesting yeah isn't that weird to think about 31 were they years. were they like commercial airlines yeah so the whole thing wow. was that like and the funny thing is, like, so many of these, both of the pilot and the co-pilot and the stewardess who sort of was, like, the the hostage 
sort of conveyor in mm. in a lot of this who stayed on for the entire ordeal are all still alive all gave their anecdotes which was yeah. very interesting but how one of the first things in the first 15 minutes is they go oh well like hijackings were kind of like normal in 1970 because people couldn't fly to cuba so people used to fly to cuba and get alcohol and drugs yeah um and then fly out and of course there were no metal detectors or security systems like right. people could just do that and i just sat there just like in awe of imagine this like casual like people being like yeah i'm hijacking the plane we're going to cuba and like the pilots <laughs> just being like nonchalant about it yeah, I, guess, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of, I guess you just think of like bank robberies or even grocery store or um, convenience store robberies and things like that. Where there is a lot that portray people as like surprisingly calm in yeah. these situations. And, and maybe you might have just answered your own question about why did security not really amp up until 9-11? Was it the technology? Was it that the yeah. 30 years that had gone by and we just had an increase in technology and metal you, detectors You think you would that? put like a police officer on every flight or something, right. like some sort of air marshal. Um, back then, at least, but um, who knows? It was it was just a different time, I guess. Mm. Um, I mean, the seventies man, yeah. Well, <laughs> in the late sixties, so that was an interesting sort of documentary. Yeah. Um, that didn't do anything that, like overwhelmingly like. I like the idea of pitting the different like perspectives together of like my yeah. guy was him, my guy was him. Yeah, that's um, cool. The only other thing I caught was. Um, as a response to uh, the Napoleon trailer being dropped, I, will, uh, very I did catch Ridley Scott's The Last Jewel. Ooh, nice. Yeah. What'd uh, you think of it? Awesome. Yeah, that's a great film. It's like the man the man just clearly needs to stay in the historical drama. <laughs> stay back in time. Because <laughs> he his eye for history and build and obviously, you know, you've seen the film. It's yep. that fantastic three acts mm. well i guess three acts of the climactic finish which is sort of irrelevant to the story really it's more just the outcome i think sure yeah but i just, don't think but it's, each is like they're very different perspectives yeah even just the subtlest of changes in certain it, they're retelling the same story yeah and it, it's just a matter of perception yeah more than anything they're not saying that it's about that subjective discourse it is what every character perceives in those moments mm. Um, and we don't really know, especially because, you know, we see, um, Jacques and man, they've got very, uh, I think it's Jacques and oh, Dupree, yeah. you know, I want to say Jacques Marguerite and, um, Sergine. Yeah. Yeah. There's Perry, Ben Affleck's character. So obviously the, the three, um, uh, Marguerite, who's Jodie Connor, um, Jean and yeah, Jacques and, Jean being Matt Damon and Jacques being Adam Driver and mm-hmm. um, having all three's differing perspectives. Um, it is interesting because you are left as a viewer. You you definitely positioned to think Marguerite's is probably the most accurate of the three. Well, yeah. I'm even just um, reading back my own review because I watched this like a year and a half ago now. This is a while. But I, I talked about, yeah, Marguerite's perspective um, her own retelling of the story is she is the most shy and uncomfortable one talking about what happened to her, despite it being the most graphic interpretation of what happens to her. And I thought yes. that was such a cool juxtaposition. But it is interesting because you are left to believe that her perception I th- is the third one we see. So as the viewer, 
It's the, it's the one that lingers the most with I, you. Yeah and, yeah, and obviously leads to that final, the last jewel, hence the, the titular name. And it's, uh, it's sort of interesting because um, is that the most true or is that just because it's the third one we, we see? Is uh, I think that obviously the, the incident is, you know, she gets um, sort of raped by Jean and it's uh, such a horrible and horrendous event. Mm. Um, and... That is such a confronting uh, tale for him to tell, and it it seems so interesting story to tell when he chose to t- tell it like this. Mm. This story, um, really, Scott, and or Sir Ridley Scott. Um, I don't think he's going to come is, after is me. He is sir. He is a sir. I did not know that. He got knighted. Yeah. Wow. Fair enough. Um, sorry, Tony. Um, uh, <laughs> R.O.P. Tony. Yeah, Rip Tony. O.G. The O.G. We, it's all right. Um, <laughs> but no, I, I think it's a really good... And it makes me genuinely excited for Napoleon. Yeah, no, that's a good pick. Because that last year was great. Like, it does... He still got it. It has that kind of energy. Yeah, I, I'm, I mean, Gladiator's pretty flawless. Um, pretty much any of his historical dramas are pretty perfect. Mm. Just keep him away from Alien after the original and <laughs> and Gucci keep him away from the Gucci's oh man that was so weird and that's the thing it's they like, came out like right next to each other but you sit there and you're like what what is this film like why are you doing this film and then it was just strange because he does a film like that which was god awful like there's no I don't think there's anything redeemable mm. about House of Gucci and then he goes and makes that film and you're like Okay, clearly you, you work in a in a, but it still does morally grey and all that stuff really well. And there's no real, I mean, Marguerite, we all sympathise with her, and she's probably the the, yeah. the most correct. Um, it's an interesting well, film to talk about. I mean, that, I mean, the what it's really high. I don't even know if it's so much like a correct or incorrect assessment, but in terms of, it's like I said earlier, in terms of which, which interpretation is the most hard-hitting, and, in, and especially in terms of the, the male and female aspect, who's diminishing their own actions more in their own head? Like, the I mean, you said a horrible thing happens to this woman, and, like, how does each character... To what to what does it mean to each of those characters, and how despicable does it make those characters? I mean, it makes it a really deep film, because yeah. there is no, like, clear answer, clear protagonist, or clear right or wrong. Yeah, and it's it very interesting. Definitely invokes that sort of conversation, that thought process, and I, I do think that's where clearly these are the stories, or at least this is the time period and these period pieces he works really well in. Mm. So um, I think Napoleon, it looks epic. I hope we get to see it. Um, yeah, yeah. Dune two, uh, Dune Part two is getting delayed. So uh, we'll shall see. Um, but that's it's, all. I've... It's almost like these actors are actually important to the release of these movies. Can you believe it? I can't believe. I it. I think like that's the segue, isn't it? Isn't <laughs> it? It's got to talk about what's happened. Really, I mean, we've talked a little bit about it last week. But sure. I, I think it's a lot more information is coming out. And things... well, the, the thing, the thing that blew me away in this last week in terms of up to dates, and like we can talk about how the the Barbenheimer box office is, has reacted compared yeah. to this strike. But the thing that really struck me is that SAG after I think it was 29 or 39 productions that they've essentially given permission to go ahead because they've tentatively agreed to um, invoke all of the demands that SAG after his most recent uh, contract or, or ask. 
uh, they basically agree to commit to all of those things, and that can change once the strike ends and a different agreement has been met. But A24s included, two of their productions are included in this, which means A24 can afford to pay these right uh, the actors and the writers, but Disney can't. The, the studio's arguments are all falling apart. It's insane. Yeah. It's absolutely insane. Yeah, and it, it is. It's it's sort of like one of those things, and I think the best thing that we can do, and obviously, you know, we're obviously going to side with the actors and the writers, because if in you look solidarity. at all the evidence, <laughs> it indicates that, you know, I was, we talked about, uh, we alluded to it earlier, but obviously there is a film that gets, was released six weeks ago mm. on Disney's streaming platform, and they just pulled the plug, and it was $50 million to produce, and you're... And they just pulled the plug because it's too expensive to keep it on the streaming platform. It's not getting, or it doesn't have it doesn't have enough property value mm. behind it. Whether that's in merchandising, distributing, you know, merchandising, uh, it, it clearly has no award clout. It's it's got um, not enough viewership. That it's clearly not satisfied enough boxes. Yeah. That that is a project that people spent timeless hours on. Mm. That is just zapped, and because there is no. DVDs that are going to be manufactured, no, like no you said, physical you, releases. If it's not been pirated, mm. it actually is lost to the vault. Lost the time, yeah. Um, that is never going to be accessible to you, and it might be accessible someday or something like that. But the, the sure. point is that this is how fine the the wire is. Mm. You know, and I was like saying, obviously, a couple of actors from Orange Is the New Black. You know, the show that. You know, around the time of Breaking Bad and, oh, and Game huge. of Thrones, it was huge. Yeah, it was. It was. It was in that top four, top five premiere shows on the television at the time. Um, and they had actors who have gotten twenty five dollars of residual for forty five episodes of work. <laughs> that is unfathomable. Yeah, like, that is actually boggling. Um, and they, these are residuals that actors have typically relied on and in some cases can like live the rest of their lives relying on these residuals yeah. um, that have now just been completely obliviated and wiped clean. And, and it's like, is it really their fault, the people receiving these residuals, is it their fault that the studios gambled on streaming? Of course not. It's the bloody studios and, and who's still getting the huge pay slips at the end of every financial year? It's the CEOs. Yeah. That are like, oh, well, it's going to take 10, 15 years to make a buck off streaming, but we're going to go for it anyway because that's the new hot thing. Mm. And uh, this is a chance for us to completely redo everything regarding residuals, which blows me away because, in theory, it's like tax. It's a percentage of the money that comes in. It's not like you have to give up. I mean, streaming's different because it's more reliant on subscription payments. Mm. I understand that, but then that argument comes up well, how, how do they calculate which shows are more popular than others and it's like they can <laughs> you kidding me i mean they were able to tell david fincher how many people stopped watching at what minute they paused when the dog was killed in house of cards it's like they know this stuff yeah it's all excuses they know exactly how much they should be paying these people yeah and they're not and it is it is it's got horrible and it does have this you know, when we were talking about with with oppenheimer and the premier and them walking off and i the, you obviously the actors are like Still allowed to promote each other's films? Am I, is that, is that... I don't... I don't know. You see a lot of actors on, like... I think July 15th, they just they just stop posting. Yeah. And, like, they can't promote these films. Or there's certain things they can... I'm sure you can get away with, but they cannot promote the films they're in. Yeah. So it ends up becoming that really, yeah, 
weird world that we're we're sort of moving into. And like you said, now we go back to what was the response with Barbieheimer in terms of box office? Yeah, well, it's insane. I mean, I'm looking at numbers now, and I think these might be changing slightly as we go because these are still like predictions. Well, not yeah. even predictions, but like um, I think the analysts have come in and said that these are the numbers they're looking at. Barbie week first weekend gross worldwide three hundred and thirty seven million dollars. That's in one hundred and fifty five million just domestically. So what we're getting these groundbreaking numbers. I think this is the most. This is the highest grossing film or opening weekend for a film directed by a woman ever. And then that with Oppenheimer tally. That's half a billion dollars mm. that they made between the two of them. It is making it the fourth highest domestic box office weekend of all time, and the and the highest since before COVID. And it's like we're we're seeing, like you said earlier, like you joked, it's like we're seeing original thing. I know Barbie's based on an IP, but like mm. we're seeing these films, these frankly mid-budget films, because they cost a hundred million to make, which is still one third the cost of Indiana Jones or The Flash or any of those big franchise films that have completely bombed, and they're auteur directors behind them and they're the ones really pushing. People are watching Oppenheimer because it's a Christopher Nolan film. A lot of people are excited about Barbie purely because it's a Greta Gerwig film. Oh, 100%. I mean, that is, let's be real, that's yeah. what got you and I. Absolutely, yeah. Like, like, some people see Barbie, some people see Margot Robbie and, or even Ryan Gosling and that's yeah. why they went and that's fine. But people like you, people like me, pretty much anyone we're closely associated with this show or, or, or our like small film community, yeah. it was because we saw Gerwig's name or we saw Bombok's name and that's why. Yeah, it, and it's like, I think it makes it kind of sound like, oh, that's like the niche, you know, f- f- cinephile group. But looking at these numbers, it's like, I don't know. I mean, these numbers are absolutely crushing all the numbers of the other superhero movies or the big Disney products mm. that have come out throughout this whole year uh, th- this is te- this is kind of proves the point we we're making last week spend less money on these films and 100 million is still an absolute ridiculous amount of money to spend on the film but it's sure as shit nowhere near the money that disney's spending on their films and and like you said they're just deleting films off their server now yeah you know they're trying to just get tax write-offs wherever they can the audience wants these kinds of films more original ips focused on directors, not the name of, you know, a superhero that's around. Like, oh, yeah. The Flash. Ooh, it's like, no, that does, that's not a guarantee anymore. Yeah, because you can't tell me that it's, you know, people aren't going to see Oppenheim film really for Oppenheimer in that sense. No. Like, it's that notion of, oh, it's the guy who created the first atomic bomb or it's a Christopher Nolan film. Mm. Like, and I think that there's that sort of thing where... You know, it's like I sent you that 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 video on that George Lucas's perception on sort of the state of the current That's right. um, uh, market, and I he's only I, been proven more right as time has gone by. It, yeah, it's like I said, it's like we said when we were talking about Lucas. It's although you know we can say what we will about Star Wars and who really cares about that opinion. The man knew the industry. He yeah. knew the climate. He navigated the climate. He is the reason in a lot of ways, that Spielberg got at least the platform to become Steven Spielberg. Mm. Um, and I think his perception was spot on. I think that idea of of a world where Jack Warner is in love with, you know, cinema and it makes sense, you know, look at the things that are produced in the 50s and the 60s and the early 70s by Warner. Mm. 
And, you know, then you look after that fact and then because of that corporate handover, they didn't know what to do. So they invest in a bunch of ragtag teenagers who come out of UCLA, <laughs> which when we think about that, that's insane. But that's mm. how guide like directionless they were. Like they didn't know what a sure thing was at that point. Yeah. Um, and then they were allowed that freedom. I mean, they were that's why Spielberg was allowed, despite getting that bad reputation, was allowed to go so far over budgets and over time because right. no one knew any better because they had just were in this fresh market. And I think it's so interesting watching that corporate hand slowly hover over and mm. press down. And we see it, like you said, you know, you talked about it, even little things like the Wonka trailer and you're like, it felt like the most Disney trait. Like, there's this genericness to the world we're in. There's, there's a machine that it goes through and it cleans it up and polishes up. And it says, okay, here are the 10 most profitable films. Here are all the trailers. Copied that. Yeah. And boom, you're going to make a lot of money. And like you said, it's like these studios in the 70s, you know, they have this big... Uh, they basically collapse and they have to rely on these new hands to come in, the Spielbergs and Lucases and Coppolas and all of that. And we are right now kind of at the other end of that arc where the studios, they think they know best. Yeah. We're, and we're they're, they're at, interfering with every little aspect of the filmmaking process. We're at the Spaghetti Western, the road shows, mm. where they're, they're like, oh, but in the 60s, it's throw musicals and throw westerns at mm. them. They like Clint Eastwood. Let's just keep giving them Clint Eastwood. And, um, oh, they liked John Wayne films. We'll keep giving them more wholesome yep. John Wayne films or oh, they really liked Barbara Streisand. She's different and Liza Minnelli. Yeah. Let's just keep throwing them. And it's like Minnelli's most successful film's Cabaret. It's an indie film that's from the mm. 70s, you know. <laughs> I mean, Streisand, yeah, she was a star at the time, but by the time she'd got to Hello, Dolly, Hello, Dolly was the biggest flop of the 60s, you yeah. know. Um, and it's the same thing. We've just replaced those genres with superhero genres. Exactly. And franchise products. I mean... We're right there on the edge. It's teetering. Yeah, and I think the strike is a big part of that. Yeah, thank God. <laughs> and maybe that's it. Maybe we need to hit the reset button and absolutely fall apart before we come back together and and we get something authentic and new. And unfortunately, that just means a lot of the ninety nine are about to suffer, not the one. Um, yeah, yeah, because well, they're willing to get starved out. I just watched the, uh, Red Letter Media just did their review of Oppenheimer, which I was quite good. Um, I've already written my review prior to that, so I don't not I don't feel influenced by what they said because we agree on quite a few things. But they talked about this strike and they talked about this idea of of everything, you know, falling apart, so to speak. And they said something: Have we just taken streaming for granted? Have we just had it so good and didn't even realize it that we're spending ten bucks a month and getting access to all this content? Is that all about to collapse? And part of me hell a big part of me kind of hopes it does Mm. because yeah it's great to have all these films at our fingertips and it's great when we decide to do a little miss sunshine podcast that it's incredibly easy and convenient to just find it online and and play it but i'm scared of where this is all going and i'm excited by the prospect of entering a new era where we do get a bunch of new lucas's and spielberg's and Mm. coppola's or yeah, I can't wait to go to the cinema and see like what this decade's version of the Graduate or Easy Rider is. Yeah, the like, cu- uh, a space odyssey. Exactly. To be not yeah. ironic with the film of the week. But yeah, we'll there you go, a little tie-in. But no, exactly. And I- I'm excited about that prospect. But what that requires is the current structure to just be completely torn apart and tear down. And we need people in charge who don't give a shit about the money. I mean, yeah, if you're going to be in the film industry, it would be nice that you give money and 
you or you get money and you can be creative and invent stuff and and push the industry forward with that money but don't let the bob Igers of the world come in and and just suck up all of the cash revenue completely drain all the creatives in the system and and just pump out superhero movies until the audience is like we are sick to death of these we're done and then you have your A24s that are not only much smaller budget, make much more interesting films, but are clearly into it because they're agreeing to SAG after his terms. It, they, they, they're just like, okay, we can do that. Yeah. No problem. And you think they're getting $500 million of profit every two months? No. Well, maybe they are. That would be fantastic if they were, but I highly doubt it. No. <laughs> Couldn't have been better said, I think. Um, it'll be an interesting climate to observe and mm. see what even what papers come out of this. Did we take mm. it, whether it's articles or it's research papers or the actual financial analysis behind the viability of of this product yeah. and whether it actually, what it could do to an entire industry. And I would much rather that be actively analysed and acted upon now mm. rather than in history 20 years from now, they go, what happened to the the fall of the film industry, Netflix? and <laughs> But at that point, it's a dead entity that's talked in retrospect. And yeah. I, I still sit here and I think every day, the more you read and the more you see the everything falling apart, the more I look to the DVD case to the left of me <laughs> and I go, well... This man knows what's up because these he owns all of these. Mm. These are his forever. Disney aren't kicking the door down to grab them. Um, and that's <laughs> it. And I think that, like you said, maybe we just completely misinterpreted that product consumption. Mm. And and the funny thing is, there, it's not like the reason I say, oh well, you've got music streaming, but it's not the same problem. Right, is the fact that most artists' revenue comes from their merchandise, their touring, mm. and a little bit of their record sale, like their sale physically. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is it mostly comes from their touring and from their merch, Yeah, from the touring. Um, that's why they do different band shirts every tour. Mm-hmm. And when you think of that, that's a whole lot of revenue that just never goes near a movie because that's not how movies work, you know? Like, movies don't go on tour. They don't get <laughs> paid a fortune to go at this specific venue at this specific date. It's one release date. And then, the, obviously, with the streaming platforms limiting certain films to two-week run times and, yeah. and merchandise. Yeah, I mean, there's a little bit of merch in certain films, but it's not like you're going to get an Oppenheimer T-shirt, are you? Like, Well, the thing the thing is, there are a lot of people with Barbenheimer shirts, but I don't think the studios are getting any uh, of that I don't money. think they are. The problem is that, and Matt Damon actually put this really perfectly in a video he did, uh, an interview he did a while ago, I can't remember when exactly, where he talked about that there are so many of these mid-budget films, I'm not talking about $100 million Oppenheimer or Barbie, I'm talking about like, you know, the $30 million budget. A lot of the great stuff you'll get in the 90s that usually did star Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, probably a lot of, um, like, Kevin Smith films, for example. I don't know if those yeah, cost yeah. $30 million. But, like, those films that had a whole extra lifeblood outside of the cinema through DVD sales. And that is just completely truncated and shrunk now. That's all gone. And, again, that was something that I think they fought for, fought for residuals from DVD and Blu-ray sales in the 2007-2008 strike. Pretty yeah. sure that was a big part of that as well, and I don't know how much of that they got. I think they did win something, but of yeah, the, that that was almost a, a phallic win because within three years, streaming platforms 
blow up. Exactly. There's always something new, you know, and, and the unions always have to keep chasing after the studios that because they have the direct line yeah. to the money. Because I can tell you, at that point, Netflix knew where they were going with mm. their company. Yeah. They didn't pivot at the last... They didn't settle and then pivot. They knew that that was coming. Probably settled on the DVD because they were like, it's not going to matter in two, three years. Mm. No, mm. they saw it. They saw it. And I know there's still a huge thing with video games now, with physical release and digital release. And, and I look at the numbers, but a lot of games now, 70, 80, 85% of game sales digital. And that... I'm like, wow. Is it the same? It's not the same problem, though, is it? Because. Well, in terms of them wanting to. uh, uh, I think you're right in the sense that it's not the same problem. I'm pretty sure video game developers do get much better pay than, like, film crews and and SAG Mm. after actors do. Well, the residuals would be a bit more clear cut because the product's the same. I yes, think. yes, that is a good point. And, and to be fair, Xbox is trying to do Game Pass. That's their like, equivalent of Netflix. And what I think I'm seeing now is that, that that's sort of like the race to the bottom of the barrel in terms of uh, value for like the smallest amount of dollars possible. And it looks like that's already sort of sinking, crashing and burning almost, mm-hmm. um, while Sony is going the complete opposite direction of premium products, $70 video games you buy at the store and... You know, if we compare it to this industry now where it's like if I I can see all the streaming services crashing and burning because, well, look what happened here with Barbenheimer. Half a, half a billion dollars. People are okay to spend the same amount of money they would spend on a month of a streaming service to go and watch one movie one time at the cinemas because of the experience. Yeah, because of the original IP. Yeah. Because of the genuine effort and detail and if you watch both trailers which you know that they were often playing within close proximity to each other and Mm. you felt like two genuine experiences were going to happen and then yeah i guess the idea of them happening on the same day definitely actually proved to be beneficial was probably not going to practice people would do all the time Mm. um but yeah I i think that people don't mind spending it if it's at the right time of the year and it's original ideas ideas that feel fresh and new and not like give me 20 bucks yeah to see the next slice of the slither of this pie <laughs> um which makes me deeply concerned you know and whether we we could talk about it now it doesn't really have to do with the film of the week but the idea mm. that this film is meant to be a launch platform for a bunch of other mattel product films yeah. In a in a Mattel cinematic universe, <laughs> another MCU um, is kind of deeply concerning. Well, I'm kind of interested, and I, that probably is a good segue to start talking about the film of the week. Because, yeah, I think I think there is a difference between the products that they're trying to sell, and then the product being used to tell an artistic story. And I I think the film of the week balances that in a very interesting way. Well. What are we watching then, Jake? This week in the show, Zeke, we're watching Barbie. Hey, Barbie. Can I come to your house tonight? Sure. I don't have anything big planned, just a giant blowout party with all the Barbies and plant choreography and a bespoke song. You should stop by. So cool. You can find me under the lights, diamonds under my eyes. This is the best day ever. It is the best day ever. So is yesterday, and so is tomorrow, and every day from now until forever. Yeah. You guys ever think about dying? When my heart 
breaks. Some things have been happening that might be related. When my world shakes. Cold shower. Ooh. Falling off my roof. Ah! And my heels are on the ground. <gasps> Barbie and Ken are having the time of their lives in the colourful and seemingly perfect world of Barbie land. However, when they get the chance to get to the real world, they soon discover the joys and perils of living amongst humans. I think the most important question, Zeke, yes. that you have to answer for me. While watching Barbie, did the cinema vibrate at times throughout the screening? Just an inconspicuous vibration. No, I did. Uh, it didn't. Did you send a video? Um, oh, I might so have. I think I saw a video <laughs> where it was like when I'm watching Barbie and it turned yeah. over and the wall had been knocked yeah, down. Yeah, I, I sent you that. Yeah, the explosion. And it was Oppenheimer. Oppen- I thought it says the atomic bomb will return. <laughs> it was so funny. Um, no, well, my, mine literally did. Like three or four times, we just hear this big vibration, feel it, and it's like, oh god, they're playing Oppenheimer next door. That's <laughs> wild. I think I was lucky, so I went and saw. This was the sad part. I saw yep. Barbie in extreme screen, and then just saw oh. a regular screen yeah. for Oppenheimer. <laughs> but given the Oppenheimer regular screen experience, I could not imagine it in extreme screen with right. extreme sound. I think yep. I probably would have ruptured an eardrum. Um, <laughs> but. Yes. I am become deaf, destroyer of ears. Yes. Yes. D-E-A-F, deaf. I'm Prometheus. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, obviously, yeah, I managed to see this nice and early. I think it was the first screening at Hoyt's Garden City for the day. Oh, yeah. So I didn't remember hearing anything. Fair enough. Um, off the top of my I didn't mind. hear it. It was just vibration. You could just hear the... And I'm like, is that Barbie? <laughs> so something Let's to do with party. this movie? All right, uh, so Greta Gerwig's latest yes. film, Noah Bo- Bombach, obviously co-writing the film, mm-hmm. um, famed director of White Noise. <laughs> um, <laughs> got to shout it out, White Noise. Yeah, we've got to keep it going, keep it going. Um, which had Greta Gerwig in it. Yes, um, it did. So a lot of, lot of cross-pollination here. Mm. Um where do you start with the films? This is the thing. We've had so much build-up. I know. We're, we're here, Zeke. We're here to talk Almost about Almost like it. you start at the dawn of time. I, well, I will... Yeah. No, that's exactly... I was surprised, because that's obviously the teaser trailer for the film. That that was straight up just the opening of the film was a nearly identical scene. I was like, oh, interesting. But it does sort of... I understand why it's there, and I think... we So we don't know each other's immediate reactions... No. ...to this film. Um... Well, I, I guess the way I'll start it is I knew going into it it was going to be this big, colourful ode to the, you know, like musicals of the 50s and, and even like surrounding of the 40s and 60s, you know, these big, colourful sound stages. Mm-hmm. And Greta Gerwig's done numerous interviews talking about that and using all the, you know, the uh, singing in the rain and even films like Wizard of Oz where mm-hmm. it's like the sets are clearly these big, colourful sound stages and the skies are clearly painted and everything's very tangible. And I knew we were going to get all that and I and I can I love and appreciate all that stuff. And thematically, it was going to be very interesting. And especially with the Greta Noah sort of team up in terms of writing a film. And what, mm. what do they have to say about, you know, this Mattel product about Barbie? And I think what this film does very well is... It skirts the line between representing or showcasing the Mattel product, but then using that product 
to tell a very personal story. And I understand that there's a lot of back, not back and forth. I, I've read some reviews that I don't disagree with that says thematically the film just goes around in circles for two hours. Mm-hmm. I don't disagree with it, but I also think it's very purposefully done. And I don't think this is a story about gender roles and like what is the solution to these gender issues we have in society. I was I was very surprised at how binary that whole thing was in terms of matriarchy and patriarchy and, and all of those well, I, things. I think that you're 100% right. It, it really, if anything, one of the last major interactions between two characters mm. basically throws those words mm. and it kind of has that phrasing of those words and it throws them in the bin. Yeah. As these invisible barriers that we've imposed on ourselves as a, mm. as a cognitive group um, and the barriers that we put and the limitations we put on oneself are imposed by yes the the the, the environment around us to an extent mm. but sometimes we just put ourselves in the box um mm. m- physically and in this film and but metaphorically <laughs> um, well, and yeah. we allow ourselves to sit in that box because that's just where the world's told us to sit mm. in um and i think i mean i, I look for me mm. I was, there were sequences where I was enthralled and it was majestic. Um, overall, I'm definitely still leaning more positive than negative to this film. Yeah. I didn't dislike the film mm. as a collective. I actually thought a lot of the handling, I, I think she is, Gerwig as, a, as an auteur and obviously a co-writer on the film, I, mm. I think she is fantastic of writing this this 21st century feminism it'll probably be coined mm. retrospectively um by theorists that know more than you and well, i do of course the, yeah and and that's the other thing we should um, point out is we are two guys talking about a barbie film um, yes and we're not going to pretend to to have the answers to anything like that i couldn't tell you the difference between what second wave feminism is third wave feminism i could not tell you the difference there yeah um but there is a lot to appreciate in terms of just very contemporary feminism and i think that's uh, shown by the what feels like a victory lap in a celebration with the cast and and just um I wrote even some names because it's like we can talk about Ryan Gosling um or of course Margot Robbie all the time uh, you know for this entire podcast but you got the Kate McKinnons and the Isa Rays and the the Harry Neffs and even the Emerald Fennells like might, you got, might be my favorite Kate McKinnon Kate oh, McKinnon she's, performance she's fantastic <laughs> But you know what I mean? It's like you got like all of these women in what feels like a victory lap in terms of just the ensemble cast's film and the celebration of femininity there. But even in the soundtrack, Billie Eilish, do do a leaper, and even Nicki Minaj, and it's like it feels like that just that collection of artists, musicians, and actors, etc. It does feel like a victory lap in that sense of very contemporary feminism in a way that I don't think Melissa McCarthy would have done five years ago if she had reigned well, over the script. Amy Schumer. What are they, where did yeah, Melissa McCarthy come list from? To, no, you're right. Uh, where, did, where did that come from, Miss Melissa McCarthy? No, you're right. Amy Schumer. Yeah. I did uh, write that down. And it's interesting because <laughs> she still makes quite snaky remarks. I saw a oh, really? of her the other day being like, oh, it ended up being like this kind of feminism film. And she was like, yeah. I kind of wanted it that way. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm sure you did. Sure you did, Amy. Sure <laughs> but you this did. is what I mean. Like, there's different levels of of feminism, and and like we can talk about in terms of uh, to what extent is like you know bashing men and like I don't know, think is, but is, 
this is, is Ben Shapiro going to have a little cry on YouTube? Of course <laughs> <Yeah>. he is. <laughs> yeah, oh man. It, I'm sorry, but I think it's so funny because the reason I say she has to be retrospectively, and obviously I do think anyone, when it comes to film theory and understanding certain perspectives and, and ways of tackling film, I think mm. anyone can tackle anything if they put the time and the effort in. Mm. I think 100% you, as a man, can read and develop an understanding on first, second, third wave feminism and actually Mm. comprehensively understand that from an objective, theoretical point of view. Mm. Everyone can. That's how knowledge works. That's how you develop it. (laughs) Otherwise, we would, none of us would be able to comment, like we'd be calling Lucas a racist because he quoted Rashomon like one time and it's like... It's the best part is that's the whole point is mm. everyone's supposed to absorb and consume this. You know, this film, like you said, you know, you saw like a very stupid trolling comment that if a man went to Barbie, they're a, they're a homosexual, which is so mm. wrong and abhorrent. I like, actually think it was commentary. a woman who wrote that as well. Well, then that's comment. just disappointing too, because it's like anyone can watch any movie. Like it's the it's a movie <laughs> it's like um and i yeah, think well, but it's it's weird to see people that are generally afraid to watch a barbie movie because they think their masculine masculinity is going to get poked at and prodded at the reason, i wore a barbie shirt yeah. to the cinema to watch this yeah well, i wore pink um, <laughs> there you go and the reason is it's like the wire um, you know it's two heterosexual white men doing that too by the way so and un- not unironically in support of the film because <laughs> they were genuinely happy to go watch the film the reason I say I put her at the forefront of that, if this is third wave, mm. I look, I said, I, I, I couldn't say, tell you the difference. Between I couldn't tell you the switch. difference either. I'm not saying that I know all those things. I know everyone's capable of learning those things. Mm. And I think that the reason I put her at the forefront is I've now seen three Greta Gerwig films mm. in Lady Bird, Little Women and this film. And all of them, I was genuinely enthralled mm. and invested and we're empowering films to women that don't necessarily have the best male characters, but you don't care because you're mm-hmm. just invested in the protagonist, which in my opinion, it's that that's the whole point. It's about quiet empowerment. Mm-hmm. It's the empowerment that's not always seen because it's about that individual. The power comes from your individual identity of who you are as a person. Um, Whether you're Knuff or not. Yeah. And it's like, <laughs> the funny thing is, she's almost taking all of that stuff that she got all that rah-rah from Lady Bird and mm. from, from, from little women where it's like these very, obviously on the surface, even in the titles, these titular characters, they're, they're meant to be these sort of ant, like more tra- like this feminism, one of the concepts, a of traditional fem- idea of, of feminist empowerment and yeah. fighting against the patriarchy, that kind of thing. And yet she then takes this character who is literally called stereotypical Barbie <laughs> Unironically, that's just her branding. Yeah. And she's ditzy and not all knowing, but then is incredibly likable and has I wouldn't mass- even I wouldn't even say she's ditzy. I think she's, she's feminine and, and, and bubbly, but she's not ditzy. Oh well she she is when they cross over to the like the real world and Yeah, the, but that yeah. that's just being a fish out of water. Yeah, true. Yeah. I think that's 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 probably a fair bump, but because Ryan a, Gosling plays the exact same position of like gosh, not knowing the social norms of where he's so he yeah he's he's brilliant. I, and I do <laughs> say my my negatives in the film honestly come from the fact that I think she has an amazing 
first half of the film and then really does take a feels like a back seat for a big period for me like okay interesting because yeah. obviously i think it does switch gears a little bit obviously focuses on a mother daughter um narrative for um i'm gonna get this right uh i feel like it's it's america ferrara i think ferrara ferrara um, from not. superstore um, ah well there you go it's great superstore <laughs> another tie-in and i do think that she sort of takes a forefront and then it becomes almost an ensemble piece for almost the third act in a way, like all the women and then all the men. Right. Um, and I think it's really hard. I don't blame general audience members thinking like Ryan Gosling kind of s- steals the show in parts. Right. Because of certain big set piece numbers. I think it's very easy for, but then is that not just someone getting the messages they want to get out of the film or the, the enjoyment they want to get out of the film? Hmm. Um, but I don't know. I'll hand it to you because I, I feel like I've talked for a lot there. Oh, it's, There's <laughs> a lot of right. idea idea dumps. No, well, look, I think well, let, yeah, because it feels like we can kind of much like the film, we can we can get into these ideas and really get it, it's very expansive. We can kind of get lost in the weeds there. Um, and that's why I think it was important to sort of start with this idea that yeah, yeah, there's all these idea of like gender roles and there's a line towards the end of the film that I think really nails it home. Cause I agree with you in the sense that I think it ultimately throws a lot of this out. It's much more the, the message about self and personal self and trying to, I mean, Barbie's journey in this film is the analog to an adolescent girl that, you know, maybe grows up playing with Barbies and has this idea of what a matriarch society looks like, goes to high school or goes into the workforce. And is it doesn't matter whether it's, you know, just being sexualized or men being men or any of that, just having a soul crushing reality slapped to the face. Mm. And that's exactly what Barbie's character goes through as well. Uh, and ultimately it's about how you as an individual can navigate through that world. I don't think the film is trying to solve any of these gender issues. And it goes back to that line towards the end of the film. And I know we're jumping ahead and getting a bit spoilery and this or that, where I think the line is in Barbie land when they, they restore the matriarchy and they, they defeat the Kens at their own game. They turn them against each other. And they say, you know, eventually the Kens will have enough power in Barbie land as the women do in the real world. And I think the point of that line is meant to mean something different to every person in the audience. Mm. And that's sort of meant to be the mirror to your face of how does that line make you feel? And if it makes you feel a certain way, then maybe that's what you should be thinking about when you think about gender roles in society in this day and age, or a Western role specifically. Yeah, I think that's absolutely genius because either that line makes you laugh or it makes you go like, oh. (laughs) And either response is perfectly fine, but I I think it's a very self-reflective, direct and targeted line in the film that is sort of what's meant to put the bow on this idea of... Because uh, I think there's a lot of people going into this film be like, oh, well, the message is we need a women-only utopia and men aren't allowed to rule because they're bad. I don't think that's the message of the film at all. No, absolutely not. I don't know how you could even get that. I, the only people getting that are the people who wanted that going in to complain about that being the thing. And the other thing I see, and I, I watched a bit of Pen, uh, Ben Shapiro's review... And a lot of his arguments stem from the fact that he thinks this is a film for seven-year-olds. And it's very clearly not. Oh, so this... I will... Okay, this is an interesting one. So obviously mm. watching it with Lucinda. Yeah. She liked the film well enough. Her big negatives. And I don't disagree. Mm. It's a very... It's PG. Yeah. Right? 
I'm I'm teetering on. I don't know if it is a PG film. I find it, this is we are always going to have films that are a little bit tricky. I don't know if it. I think it probably does squeeze into PG, like PG thirteen. If we had a PG thirteen, yeah, it's definitely PG thirteen. The US. Um, it's tricky, isn't it? Because PG there's a lot here, of innuendo jokes and some that aren't direct very subtle. Ones. Yes, and that's the difference. It's not like the like a Toy Story or a, or like a Pixar like a, film that yeah. threw away like an adult. It's a joke for the adults that they yeah. get it. Or a, a Shrek. Oh, you think he's compensating for something? And it's yeah. like, no, it's very much like, we don't have genitals. Yeah. That's a line in the film. Yeah. And then, of course, well, there's the, the gynecology punchline yes. at the end. Yeah. Um, and it definitely, and the beat you off, like obviously yeah, which the is in the trailer. Yeah, big one as well, yeah. So I, I think that I would have honestly been this close to being like, I think it might be M. I can see her argument was, I think that there's enough in the marketing to still make it a little cloudy that parents might take a kid to it. Yeah. Um, But then at the same time, I my argument to her, my counter argument and my counter argument in this conversation would be, well, if I was a parent and I brought my kid to that and then heard those things and went, I don't want to hear my kid that, I, you just leave the cinema and get your money back. Mm. You don't complain. You just go, okay, well, this was not the movie for my kid. Uh, like, I think I under- it was a bit misleading. Yeah, well, look, I understand the perception of someone who's not aware of the marketing. And, and like I think there's a reason they put the beat you off scene in the trailer is to give people just a bit of a heads up as to what the comedy is going to be throughout and and i understand people just seeing the barbie logo on at the cinema and be like oh perfect i'll take my seven-year-old to see that i understand that misconception but the first scene in the film is a 2001 space odyssey reference yeah (laughs) and it's like i think this i mean it goes back to like you said the the barbie font they're using is what like the 70s 80s and 90s and 90s font which yeah, reflecting yeah. the people that were actually in the film. Exactly. And I think that's almost a way of saying that this is also the Barbie version we're, of the audience we're appealing to in that we're not necessarily appealing to the kids that are playing with Barbies right now. No. We're appealing to the audience that played with Barbie 10 or 15 years ago yeah. and are now young adults, maybe even teenagers, and and who are able to understand the social commentary because maybe the first 15 minutes of this film is for a seven-year-old. But all the existential dread and all the 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 shocking, soul-crushing discovery of the real world, those are things that you only understand when you get to high school yeah. or when you go into the, the workforce. I think the tricky thing is, I think, and quote me if I'm wrong, I'm just saying sure. you can spot it. You don't have the Lego Movie on. DVD. I do not, no. No. I, I bought Francis Harvey recently. I found it on I Lego. think Lego Movie might also be PG, and that's where it gets... That's that trickiness, isn't it? Because it's like, what is... What is PG? But mm-hmm. then, of course, if you look in the little white box, it's got everything that we're saying right now yeah. in a reference. So all of a parent has to do is actually read the classification, which mm-hmm. is the thing that they tell you to do. Yeah. Um, I don't think that there's misinformation there. I mean... Well, I got my ticket here. It's rated PG for mild crude humor, induendo, coarse language, and slapstick violence. And if anything, the only thing that caught me off guard was the violence when Alan starts fighting all the construction people. I was like, whoa. It, like, it's very slapsticky and, and comedic. Yeah. But I was like, wow, violence in a Barbie movie. It was definitely the innuendo for me, the the very yeah. clear call to their their physical construct as a, yeah. as a Barbie and Ken. Because <laughs> it just was like a wrecking ball. That's a great... Oh, the Supreme Justice is up there on the, <laughs> on the billboard. 
There's a, there, look, That's trust great. me, there are, there are a lot of... It's the Zool, It almost had Zoolander-esque oh, yeah. humour, didn't it, um, <laughs> at points. But there's a lot of intellect in the film, so we can move past that. I think at the end sure. of the day, you're a parent, I'm sorry, but you have to take the 20 seconds to read a, a classification. And if it's... If not, if you still stumble into the cinema and, and you get to that and you're not happy, then all you got to do is go back. You can go back to 99% of cinemas mid-movie and go, can I have my money back? I think the fact that um, this is even a discussion of like the fact that there may be confusion as to who this film is for goes back to, again, that idea of Greta Gerwig you, like, you, showcasing the product but also using it to tell her story. And the fact that Mattel... I mean, they talked about it endlessly, the fact that they were shocked that Mattel even approved the script or even allowed a lot of the jokes. And it kind of has that same energy where, like, The Simpsons used to make lots of jokes at Fox's expense back in the mm. day. Certainly not now with Disney. They definitely... They, they, they worship their overlords now. But back in the day, it has the same thing. And even, like, there's the line where, um, you know, President Barbie... She drops an F-bomb and it's censored with the little Mattel logo. Yeah. I've been like, blame them. They're the reason we can't swear in this movie. Like, I just, I, I think that's all really great yeah. stuff. <laughs> no, it's 100% right. Um, but yeah, obviously the the film has that beautiful sort of opening and, and does that perfect sort of Lego movie, everything is awesome yeah. kind of own version of that. And we really get to see how why this film should just be given an Oscar for production design and we can all just move on. Like it's, it's, it's going to be the most one horse race. I think. I hope so. And it's, it's just tough because it's, it's so, it's beautiful and so colorful and, and I love how everything's so perfectly disproportionate and the empty cups and the showers and even the seagull puppets in the background that hopefully don't end up flying into the set of the lighthouse. (laughs) That would be really bad, (laughs) but I love all those details. But to that point, it's so committed to that soundstage um, authentic artificiality that I think is the term Greta Goeg used um, that I hope that people actually appreciate it at the Academy because it could easily lose to like some random war film that comes out six months from now. Oh, no. Because, oh, explosions and guns and, and dirty costumes. And it's like, we've got to appreciate how much of a beautiful ode this is to cinema of the past, not just 2001. If it's getting one but... award, that's that's the one yeah. for me. I think it feels undisputed well even even costume design and i mean my favorite detail again i read this beforehand but i love that each day the different the several different outfits that margot robbie goes through even though the one's like a beach outfit and one's like a sleeping outfit they're all the same colors and shapes within that day and i thought that was such a cool Mm. little detail not to mention they're all authentic outfits yes based off some form of barbie attire yeah there's always some like version of Barbie you can point to and like this is from this like the year of release from this Barbie collection and this thing like yeah. that level of a, a detail it's like nah yeah your costume production design give them those if it's gonna have those or, yeah actually um, when it's just for the press tour outfits <laughs> yeah well and I mean like you said it sets this precedent and it's obviously this utopic world of absolute matriarchal domination mm. and um. Obviously, there's this this dynamic that yeah, stereotypical Barbie, Margot Robbie is dating stereotypical Ken. We assume yep. um, who's Ryan Gosling. He's just beach, and yeah, obviously <laughs> he's very di- he's definitely dipsy and dim-witted, yes. and um, 
so one tracked in his personality that he has only been made for Barbie. Yeah. Essentially. He's basically Forky. Um, <laughs> instead of I am trash, I am beach. I am um, beach. <laughs> and um, I just but like that's when like Ryan Gosling's performance it, it's so perfect because it's first off that there's just it's self deprecating to an extent, but it's it's just like completely shameless. Like it, it the it, just the facial expressions he makes when he's like trying to sneak into the dance off, yeah. and then just like he's <laughs> he's like cocky face when he he's like pumping the air. I just it's so brilliant. Yeah. He is so like. But that's one thing I don't blame if you watch this movie and you feel like he steals the show. Yeah, because he does get given. I mean, he arguably gets given the. I won't want to say the most powerful scene in the film because I don't think it is the most powerful scene. Sure. But it's the most prominent and it's the biggest set piece. Right. You're talking um, about his um, performance. He's... The big... Well, basically, the singing in the rain number. It's yep. the gotta dance scene, I'm isn't just it? Ken. It's, I'm just Ken. <laughs> um, that whole sequence. Um, yeah, that's the big... Like you said, in the ode of the 50s, that's the mm. big crescendo number. It's the gotta dance in, in that. A hello, Dolly in, hello, Dolly in. There's so many, um, I watched Chicago in the last week too. Like, you know, the, the, every film has one of those and, and that's that big moment. I don't think that that's the most powerful scene in the film. Sure. And that I won't spoil my highlight scene, but, mm. um, I don't blame people for, like you said, those subtle nuances, his weird, um, sort of anti-Kenness that yeah. he has so early on and he's so petty and jealous and. You know, when he goes into the, the world and he sees all of the man, prop, man gander. Um, oh my God. It's so brilliant. He's, uh, most of the time he's just this like lap dog. And then he basically sets the patriarchal nuclear bomb off of, of three books there from a go. library. <laughs> um, yeah. Men rule. Literally. Yeah. Um, well, I, well there, there's a couple of things there. First of all, I love the use of the Strauss piece in there, which of course was popularized in 2001, just using that same music, but like a slightly more contemporary version of it, just to, you know, with Barbie, we've already seen that like Dawn of Man moment. And I was talking to Kirsty, she was giving me all the musical theory behind that piece. And she was telling me about how it also talks about how life is cyclical, which ties into the whole ending, of course, of, you know, Barbie's never meant to die, sort of that aspect of the ending. Mm. But, what I love as well is, and I think this is what also helps his performance and makes him not, he's comically evil in that moment when he's hes turning it into, he's turning Barbie land into a patriarchy. And I think mean, he doesn't realize how evil what he's doing is because he's so naive and he has that childlike admirance of like trucks and horses and cowboy outfits. And it's, it's so funny and so reminiscent of what a five-year-old would be into. The equivalent of guess girls playing with Barbies, boys playing with trucks, trucks and, and cars, and... exactly, yeah. And, and I mean, that's what makes it like work because it's so silly and self-aware, and and it's not, it it's it's the most light-hearted, you know, pulled-back punch on patriarchy possible. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Great. I mean, it's not trying to be. And then obviously the the I would even argue the real world depiction. Mm. Obviously, Will Ferrell's character is kind of the embodiment of the corporate real yep. world. Is even, I mean, the fact that you have Will Ferrell, the head of Mattel, yep. is setting a precedent for the tone of the film. It definitely doesn't want to um, present its male patriarchal figures as actual menacing. They're, exactly, they're, I mean, they're not. Yeah. 
they're not um you know logan roy are they i mean they're not this <laughs> brian cox playing will ferrell's character yeah that'd be brilliant but no you're right it's like will ferrell he's the guy who played elf yeah you know it's like it, there's there's an inherent silliness to his performance and and even like when he sees barbie he's he's got this weird blend of like being enamored by her and like starstruck by her and, and... I, I one of my biggest problems with the film is mm. his character okay because his character is is confusing i think a little because like mm. you said I, I don't know if it's necessarily makes a lot of sense because if anything his he basically he actually is aligned to barbie mm. like and Barbie eventually becomes aligned. They both have the same ideologies, I guess, for different reasons. Right. But the whole thing is, he wants the Barbie land to go back to Barbie land. Yeah. Too. And he kind of is pointless in the sense that he essentially serves as a as a plot boomerang mm. character because he basically is there only to send Barbie back to Barbie land, but through a chase sequence rather than right. through, like getting the... Basically, the denuralizer from Men in Black, which is the box. <laughs> um, and it's just a character that I I don't know. I don't. The ending for him is very confusing and a little. I know it was satirical. The whole idea of him being like, oh, an average Joe Barbie wouldn't, well, just a plain Barbie wouldn't work right, and then until the market research guy comes goes, in, make yeah. a lot of money, and then it's that I capitalistic it. notion. Yeah. Well, um, I, guess, I guess there's two things. There's a capitalistic angle, which is like, he wants everything to go back to normal because it's the most financially beneficial thing yeah. for his company. But then there's also that thing, the film doesn't really suggest it too much, but he goes on about like, this could be catastrophic for our world or it means weird things for our world. And is isn't quite necessarily going to why, but I guess the suggestion is that just like when Ken went into the real world, he went back to his home and turned mm. it into a patriarchy perhaps all the Barbies went into the real world and potentially turned that into a, a matriarchy. And so maybe that's like the the subtext and the fear that he has. And that's what he means by the world would be really um, turned upside down. So it almost needs to sit in that box, yeah, mm. of that, that, that other world. But Stasis, going back to, yeah, the status quo. I just, yeah, I think his character's a little foggy and a little ambiguous and... Mm doesn't really offer a lot to me. It almost felt like Mattel just wanted like a fun face at the front or at points. And I, I thought that there would be more for his character to do. Right. Because the first act definitely set, well, I guess the second act really sets that precedent when we meet him. Mm. You think, oh, this is the chief, him, the Mattel head is going to be the chief antagonist of the right. film. Obviously that flips very quickly and we, we figure out very early on Ken is going to become the, the the antagonist so it ends up being this weird sort of stasis observational character but then we have like i said we have um america ferrera yeah who sort of takes on that role very quickly after barbie reunites with her and ends up mm. being kind of the human in the the world so we don't yeah they're... i guess she, well i guess what her character is meant to represent and of course there's the side stuff with her and her daughter sort of reconciling through this journey and and I love the costume change. She goes from wearing all black punk goth girl to wearing pink in Barbie land. But she, what she does is that when they go back to Barbie land and all the girls are being sort of indoctrinated into being, uh, you know, agreeable girlfriends and maids and whatnot, she's the one that has the lived-in experience of what it's like to be a girl in a patriarchy world. And she's the one that has the big monologue about the... You know the the unrealistic great or great model, yeah, of of controversy, contradictory, 
uh, expectations yeah. of being a woman in the real world, and that's obviously what kicks a lot of the Barbies back into their original mindset. So that's like I guess that's a narrative service that she has, but I, I guess in a way also an audience surrogate because she's the one going around and be like, I remember that Barbie and I own that yeah, clothing and nostalgia act exactly basically. yeah. Um, and obviously the younger girl is meant to be the depiction of the future that we're we're, we're going in and. I think that their arcs also... I mean, for her daughter, it's also lose, like losing a bit of that adolescent pessimism, which is definitely yes. creaked in with this new generation. I think that's what Gerwig and Pombach are trying to say mm. with that character, is the fact that... Calling Barbie a fascist. Well, that, that first... <laughs> and, and to be honest, you know, as a high school teacher, Great. it's true. They've mm. become incredibly... Their consumption of overconsumption and stimulation of media, um, these wildly there's a lot of negativity in the world it's very easy for them to be like what's even the point in trying like mm. everything sucks like yeah. i'm a i'm a girl going into a world where everything's going to suck for me why should i even try now like yeah and obviously you know that that's a very binary and obviously a very and the whole point is i think that everyone needs to open up their eyes a little bit and sure. know that their expectations are not limited to these boxes these labels mm. these systems um, I guess what it is is you're right. She has this preconceived idea, a negative connotation of what Barbie is, and I think that that you know when the trailer says if you hate Barbie, this film is also for you. You, you know if you love Barbie, is and that's the analog. She accuses Barbie of you know you're, you're bad for body image, you're bad because you're sexualized or overly sexualized, and like that's your legacy in society. Not only have you not solved all gender politics issues like the narrator at the start of the film said, which was great. <laughs> That's a great laugh. Um, but you've mirror. actually contributed, yeah, to, to the issues that we're having. And I think what it, that's saying is she has that immediate negative reaction without realizing that that stereotypical Barbie didn't intend for this at all. And it's not her fault that she's over-sexualized. And I made this epiphany just earlier today. I'm like, I don't think Margot Robbie has a, a, one outfit in this entire film that shows cleavage. And that, that just kind of made me double-take of like, yeah, what is inherently over-sexualized about Barbie other than just what's being portrayed onto that legacy and that, that name, that trademark? Essentially, yeah, it's just the, the skinny body image, really. Exactly. That's about it. I yeah. mean, I mean, I was somebody I was even talking to mum earlier today about, and she was saying, like, yeah, like, she's showing off legs in, like, the swimsuit outfit. But it's, like, other other than the skinniness, there is no, like, overt sexualization no, of this but, character. But, a, but a, as usual, it's that sort of meta... Um, sort of cognitive language that particularly her mm. and um, Gerwig and Bombok are so known, we known from in a lot of their scripts, these big over uh, long, di- and this is actually so minus, it doesn't have nearly as much dialogue as something like a Francis Ha or a, sure. or a, um, certainly not, not a Mumblecore film. <laughs> no, it's not. And it's, and it definitely benefits a lot. It has that one massive monologue and that's about it. But we do see these, the sort of tearing down of, of walls and labels and, mm. and social commentary. Like she, you know, she has these, that big um, outburst at Barbie, which brings her to tears. And this makes you so sad. Well, it does. It makes you more sad that it's like you said, it's this complete and utter deconstruction of this toy that brings nostalgia and joy to a lot mm. of people in a time when you're a kid and you don't think about a lot of that stuff. Exactly. And I think that the way that, that plays to this film's strengths is 100% right. We put so... Um, nothing but optimism, happiness, and joy into our toys and mm. and 
to see what that gets warped into as we get more older and cynical. And yep. the fact that this older and when I say older and cynical, I mean now that that's no longer being a teenager, like like that you were not allowed to be a kid as a teenager. You got to start being an adult way earlier. Yeah. That robbing of the innocence isn't just in their age, it's in their perspectives of the world. They have no optimism wanting to go into the world. Mm. And that can be really deflating. And you hear that and it hits you because you've heard the commentary of, of some of the kids around you and you're you're like there's so much to look forward to mm. and it just feels like it's this big negative cloud and it can be it can be tough sometimes to hear that and it's yeah i think that's what she's trying to get across in that scene i think yeah exactly and and that is a character that does eventually have that negative outlook on life sort of broken down a little bit and i guess that's her being brought it's almost like her finding her childhood again by being brought back into Barbie land yeah. and seeing all these things that, you know, she did own, it was her Barbie initially. And obviously it was, it was, I think Gloria it's yeah. Gloria that comes in. She's the one that starts playing with them again and, and gets all these, uh, more existential thoughts into stereotypical Barbie's head. But yeah, it is, it is a way of getting her back into her childhood optimism. Yeah. And I mean, that's such an interesting reverse arc. That the, that the daughter has in the film. While also awakening the activist nature that um, adults should have. I mean, mm. in Gloria, the fact that she's the one who, who does this big dialogue and she convinces the Barbies to snap out of their, uh, their conformative trances yeah. and, and, <laughs> and basically awaken. And, and that obviously builds that rapport back up with her, her daughter who's telling her to just sort of not like, well, technically in this context fight the patriarchy but right. more just regain a sense of identity and purpose because mm. at that point she was just in a state uh, a, a limbo of of mundanity and and apathy yeah more than anything which is sort of i think the point that i i get a lot from it particularly you know when after everything's been resolved and the women trick the the barbies trick mm. the kens into uh skipping the vote essentially in the, <laughs> a, the a, a war the, cry battle that turns into a dance off and a oh, they actually they actually did beat each other off Zeke. they did there they you did. go they, they did, did. in an simple. amazing an amazing 1950s number um <laughs> and i i think it was really interesting you know because obviously you have that final sort of like you said the the space odyssey sort of empty portal transient scene of mm. um dialogue which basically gives the thesis statement of the film and what barbie represents as a as a toy but also what the concept of identity really is that yeah. it's identity is just yourself and you define yourself and then that gets lost in the noise of labels mm. and systems and uh media and consumption mm. and society and if you're really sort of true to what you want in yourself, you can actually achieve everything, which I think that that's sort of the notion I got from that last yeah. sequence. I don't know if that's what you got from it. Yeah. I think I like, it almost felt like a little bit of a shout out to, um, after sun, <laughs> especially as we get the images of the, of kids and families playing with their dolls, which I understand was actually the cast and crew's home footage that they mm. kind of pinched and, and spliced together into that sequence, which I thought was really kind nice. Kind of feels like that. Yeah, yeah. I think that's what I read, which was very nice. Because I was wondering, I was like, wow, this is getting really 
interesting ethereal in that sense. I mean, it's just as ethereal as the opening scene, the 2001 yeah. reference. And I mean, if you if you think about that's what kind of the Lego movie's doing in its sort of climax. I think it's doing it a little bit softer. Mm. Not maybe as technical, a bit more um, overt. I can um, barely remember the ending of the Lego movie. Ah, it does a lot of cross. I mean, it, it's more... <laughs> it definitely focuses oh, on... Oh, I remember particular. the Will Ferrell aspect, of yeah. course. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, whereas... I mean, that's definitely a more direct correlation between mm. the people playing with the dolls or the, the toy and the actual toys themselves. Whereas this is almost just, yeah, like this alternate, weird, unexplainable universe that people mm. can control in. And they make it very quick to dismiss any sort of actual scientific rationale behind it. It's just a yes yeah. and let's move on. Yeah, there's a couple of those moments where it's like, don't think about it too much. We'll, <laughs> we'll move Isn't that on. annoying that movies have to do that now? Like that weird sort of like... I, I, the... I guess so, yeah. It's been very direct with the audience in that example. Um, but even like Back to the Future does that to an extent, or even the second film where he, he's drawing up on the yeah, board, but he's, he, he doesn't want to complicate it more than that. Um, yeah, I, I guess, but I could see... But then this is the thing. I mean, the, peop- the people that would complain about like, oh... It doesn't make any sense. So they're taking a spaceship to get to Earth. Like people are going to complain about like that kind of logic. I don't think it matters whether the film tells them not to think about it. They're still going to think about it and be upset about it. So I'm surprised they didn't go to the uh, like the cabin in the woods way of being like we pay tribute to Satan to make these dolls <laughs> turn these dolls. But it's obviously there was a correlation. I mean, they have that scene when the Kens take over that mm. the Ken house is selling, like, hotcakes. That's right. Yeah, that was, that so there's, was hilarious. There's clearly yeah. a direct correlation a between, ticking, yeah. Yeah. between the, uh, the the world, the Barbie world, and yeah. the real world. Is What happens in the Barbie world is sort of the corporate reflection. Mm. And, I mean, they, they very much do a Lord Business Tower sort of way. I mean, the people that work in the pods are, like, in these weird, dimly oh, lit Oh, yeah, the, the cubicles and yeah. like just how sterile the Mattel building looks. And, yeah. And, you know, compared to the colourful Barbie world. That's true. Well, there's even that line of, like, do giant hands come and play with you? And they're like, don't, don't be crazy. Of course not. <laughs> it's just, like, those leaps in logic where it's like, well, that, that's a that's a leap too far. What are you talking about? But um, Sweden. But, yeah, Sweden. <laughs> Sweden. <laughs> there you go. But then... The other okay, so there were a couple of things I was like, okay, is obviously you got um, the narration in there. I was a little worried at first because it, it almost felt like all of the little Easter eggs of ah uh, noticing that the, you know, there's no water coming out of the shower or the fact that um, Barbie floats to the ground because she's not using the staircase because that's never how anyone played with those dolls. The fact that the narrator had to sort of not had to but does explain what those references are or talks about why Alan and Midge were discontinued or the fact that they are. I was just like, do we need that? Like, I know you're establishing your world. It's very early in the film, but it kind of felt a little like start of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood when Kurt Russell was doing his narration, but then it goes like another two hours without any narration. Mm. But I don't really complain. Just a thing of like, those were cool Easter eggs that were almost over-explained in that moment. Yeah, it probably wasn't needed. I think it was more mm. there for comedic effect more than anything. Sure, yeah. Um, what did you think it's... of the Justice League joke? <laughs> it was pretty good. I, I think the the John Cena cameo was a, oh, was a fun one. Oh, that's great, yeah. Um, <laughs> the water, I think, was one of the funniest concepts. Oh, yeah. Like, And it sets the tone in that first shot when she goes down the pool. 
and the pool's not got water in it. Yeah. Um, or even just um, Ken like bouncing, in- <laughs> bouncing off the uh, plastic water and, and even just his motion as he's flying around very yeah. dull. Like, I loved every time they did that when, it, when an actor would just start moving around like a plastic doll. Yeah. Um, or Margot Robbie just like the kind of feet. falling on her face. Yeah, the feet one. <laughs> the um, feet's great. I do think that, yeah, that I I don't mind the structure of the film. I really do like the messages and the theology behind the film. Mm. I think there are bits that are a little, like, it's tricky, maybe not redundant. I, I think the, the ending for me, I didn't land, but I also have sat here now for four days trying to figure out how I would end this film. Right, and okay. I don't I think I can come up with anything else. Yeah. So maybe it's just it was a tough film to end. I didn't know what they were going to do with Barbie. Right. And why this Barbie needs to particularly go on the the space odyssey journey because mm. maybe because she's the most stereotypical. That's the point. Yeah. But it is interesting her ending. Obviously, speaking to the original creator of Barbie. Right. The um Ruth. Ruth. Speaking of Ruth. Um. And there's a really nice scene with her granddaughter, I think it is, on the, the bench, is the Easter egg. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, In the middle of the film, but... um, Yeah, it was funny, because um, I think there was the misconception that that was her or the granddaughter. It was actually Anne Roof that played daughter. her, who's a, fa- who's a fantastic um like production designer. Yeah. But I don't know if it's a daughter. I think it is. Oh, sorry, Anne Roth. Her name's Anne Roth. Oh, okay. Yeah, which is why it's... Uh, Thought that that was I, the idea, but I was um, reading articles that like clarified that because I think that was a pretty common misconception. But, um, oh, like I didn't think that was the creator, creator, right? The one who was right. playing it was the woman on the bench in the middle. Yeah, well, that the, that definitely gave me the. I I was like, is that the same as Ray Perman's character, who is Ruth? But no, I, I think they're technically separate. Yeah, okay. characters. Yeah, um, but, but that's the connection I made as well. That they're very tied together. Those. Two yeah, I, I I didn't know how to land on the ending. I I didn't mind the basically putting the thesis statement, but I thought mm. the statement had already come along. I thought the ending in the Barbie world was actually kind of a could have been a perfectly fine going off point for me. Oh, okay, um, without Barbie essentially like becoming human, so to speak. Yeah, I didn't. I for me, Barbara I didn't. Barbara Handler. S- well, does she have to go? Does she have to become human? I Just... think my, I guess my interpretation of it now, and I, I actually haven't. I've been talking, me and, t- and this is what I want to talk about as well, really quickly, is like the power that this film has had in audiences. Not only did this film, like my sister took my mum to the movies to watch this. I don't need to say any more to tell you that that's powerful right there. <laughs> mm. But also, like me and Kirsty being having, I've we've never had conversations about films the way that we've been talking about Barbie. Yeah, and like we've 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 watched some deeper films and some fun comedies, and obviously I've got her to watch Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. We've had some interesting conversation about there, but this was like one where we both went in with the same level of expectation. It was consumable in the sense that she's not going to want to watch Oppenheimer, <laughs> but also this film has deep enough films that we've both had just really interesting conversations. Yeah, and I and I just really appreciate that. But the one thing we haven't talked about too much was the actual ending. So I'm really only thinking about it now, and I guess the reason that she becomes human is that that's their way of representing this idea that she has now been exposed to the real world and has been exposed to the other side of what a patriarchy looks versus a matriarchy and this idea of, I, I guess, personal satisfaction or finding oneself, you know, being enough, mm. so to speak. 
and I think be- becoming human is is representing that she's basically red pilled. That she she's you know what I'm I'm back in the box. My reality in Barbie was being back to normal, but I still there's still more. I still aspire mm. to more, and that because Barbie has no ending, I need to aspire to more. And I think that's why that's their version of showing that she's going to continue on a journey of discovery. Yeah. It's interesting because mm. I don't know if the threshold, like the threshold needs to be crossed because she could easily go about building herself up in the, the Barbie world. But the thing is, I think you could go either way mm. and both endings. Probably I would be sitting here being like, I don't know which would be better or yeah, worse or fair or, enough. I think her arc is her self-awareness. So where she ends up, like the... I, I th- wasn't a fan of the final joke line. I wasn't like... Oh, okay. I, I was like, okay. I think that was actually... I, for me personally, I felt that was a little like... It was funny, but it was like... I don't know if it was needed. I think it was more like her, sure, yeah. her going for a job, but then that well, was I, the that, misdirect. I that's, that's the, the misdirect, exactly. Yeah. I get it. And it's um, like one final laugh before we cut to credits. I get it. Yeah. It's it, Yeah. We don't see a lot of joke stingers um, anymore. I think um, I don't know. I don't know if it landed with me, but um, I am like a little, yeah, a little confuzzled about where I would land with the ending because I don't know how the end. Of, I don't know if it sat with me because I got all the messages. I felt satisfied. Right. Like you said, the the narration was talking about oh the Kens will get a right eventually as soon as the women get a right and yeah I thought that was a really clever joke and she she's friends with Ken but she's you know obviously not going to date him and every and well that that's an interesting scene where they both sort of admit they both admit fault in that moment yeah because it's like okay well Ken's being sort of the creepy friend zoned guy that's following her everywhere. Um, but then even Barbie admits to like, you know, I don't have to have a girl's night every night and that I'm allowed to give you attention because, because they are boyfriend, girlfriend. When he says that she doesn't object to it, but I guess in terms of, uh, by ignoring him and, and not giving him enough attention that's led him on this path, even though I guess we as a society of view to look at a guy that's just chasing a girl and being friend zoned and clearly is not wanted to, you know, that that's the bad guy. Hmm. And I'm not saying the film makes it a good thing. Like Ken, uh, there's a line where it, she's like, "I feel bad for Ken." He's like, "Well, he still like took over this entire town <laughs> and stole your house and all." There's that line that sort of recontextualizes it all. Yeah. But I thought it was interesting that that traditional bar- or stereotypical Barbie like admits fault in that moment as well and helps him essentially have some sort of independence yeah. or self reliance. He's not reliant on her anymore. Yeah, and it is. It is interesting because their their design, as even Will Ferrell's Mattel CEO says, mm. it's like we only made them because basically we had to make them. Right. And the market the, research told us to. Yeah. yeah. The lack of intellect in their characters and even depth in their characters is all like obviously the direct reflection of their creation. They were they, mm. they were the afterthought. Yeah. It's always Barbie and Ken, not Ken and Barbie, mm. and or even just Ken. Yeah. He is now on the poster. Just Ken. <laughs> He's Knuff. He's Knuff. Yeah. Before we go into our highlight scenes, uh, wanna, well, we, we've already, we actually already talked a little bit about uh, where we think this film's going to rewind up in the Oscar pool. Yeah. I mean, Ryan Gosling's performance, that, that's such like a Golden Globes comedic musical 
award right there. Yeah. I don't know if it's Oscar worthy. I think there are other performances that are <laughs> that in favor of best supporting actor. Yeah. Oh. Even just this past weekend. Yes, I would say <laughs> that a couple of more performances. And I think he's great. Like, yeah. don't get me wrong. I do think, in terms of entertainment and obviously comedic aspects. Yeah. But he's obviously given the most comedic aspects, so it's not fair to say he's the best part because he's the funniest. It's like his character is meant to be the funniest. I yeah. Think. Well, I'm I'm just thinking more like from the Academy perspective, are they going to appreciate his comedic chops enough to put him in the same round as like all the dramatic performances that are going to be up in that same? In that oh, same I could see area. him getting a nom. Possibly, yeah. I don't see it, but he'd be like, "I'm oh, definitely not going to win." No. <laughs> we'll have to see. Hey, no. you never know, Zeke. No. To be fair, Kelly Murphy's gonna. Oh, yeah, it's got a good chance actually. I, I think it's a one. I think it's. Is it? He's won an Oscar before, hasn't he? Did he win one? Kelly and Murphy. He got I think he's been nominated twice. Oh no, Ryan Gosling's been nominated twice. Yes. I don't know about Kelly Murphy, well, but yeah. Anyway, but like, like we were saying earlier, the what's even what's designing. he even in? I don't even know what he's in. Kelly Murphy. Yeah, I, I what's think, he? What's the film? That I think you're talking Blinders, about this sound. Yeah, the Oscar movie that he's in that you're talking about with Killian Murphy. He wasn't in Barbie. No, what? He was. What's the other? Oh, film? right, right. I don't right, know what the, that other <laughs> film is. <laughs> okay, I know he has nothing to do with Barbie. What yeah, are you talking about? Yeah, on. that I was slow on that one. I'm sorry, Zeke. That's all right. Sorry. <laughs> well, the the last thing I want to mention before we get into highlight scenes, um, this kind of feels like a full circle moment for Margot Robbie. Obviously, as an actress and a producer, but think about it. Her big introduction into the industry was ten years ago, in The Wolf of Wall Street, and she, sure, back then plays the same blonde bombshell kind of character, but serves a very different purpose in that film's narrative. Mm. You know, with the thick Brooklyn accent and the um, Brooklyn accent. I think that's well, not, she is. This film is definitely, like yeah. you said, I think this is her moment to solidify herself in the same company uh she's now a mega hollywood star like she is and i think that that is something we can kind of take for granted because Mm. i think people do come and go i mean i genuinely when we talked about the other day with with jennifer lawrence um she was at the forefront of popularity for a period of time and then dipped away. Sure. Um, and that happens. Like, that's the one that comes to the top of my head. But there's tons of others, you know. Um, and I think, like, someone like Florence Pugh is on the trajectory to be in the same company as Margot Robbie in terms of right. popularity and success. But like you said, but from a, from a Hollywood megastar akin to, you know, the ones of yesteryear, there are very few that are in that company. I really think... She has solidified herself. She's definitely the number one Australia actor, mm. Australian actor in cinema right now, and probably will be for the next decade. I would say. Yeah, well, she has surpassed Hugh Jackman. Well, I think even just like her role in The Wolf of Wall Street, that's a hard role to remove yourself from, especially if that's your introduction to most audiences out there. Mm-hmm. It's the first time that I'm guessing we, even as Australians. I, I didn't watch Neighbours. Nope. Yeah, you know, but it's like, even that was the first time we saw her there. And again, it's like, she's she has a full frontal nude scene in that film. Yeah. She's the sexy blonde in that film. Yeah. And 
I you just have to give her props for kind of wiggling out of that. And obviously, she's done the superhero thing, I Tonya, and she started her own company, and so she's a big producer in this film. And but then even the last couple of years, you've had as Amsterdam and Babylon and films that kind of flopped. And I remember seeing articles saying like, oh, you know, one flop away from Margot Robbie getting kicked out of town and i'm like that's insane but how is that how either of those her fault and i'm, I'm glad that barbie she's right back up there in terms of her box I, office i just think that there's enough i think she even mm. in once upon a time in hollywood like oh yeah fantastic. there's something about her that is is just a draw and it's you know it's it, i actually think it's not it's definitely not skin deep there's more there yeah. to it and um you know, I think that she is a forefront. She is really a certified star in this. And I, I think that it is, for her, it's that. I think it's definitely a consolidation and a real fundamental proving ground also for Greta Gerwig. I think you can hand, oh, yeah. I think you can hand her any project next. Well, they're doing it. They're giving her Narnia films to direct. And I didn't realize that she wrote the, or she co-wrote the Snow White film that Disney's doing. That I think they're shooting yeah. at the moment, but which is kind of—I mean, it's a shame. It sounds like she's getting like Disneyfied. That's sad. But um, I think you're right. I think mean, I mean this this puts her on a trajectory that, you know, ten years ago you watch Frances Ha and it's like, wow, she's like a great indie star. Yeah. And then Lady Bird and Little Women, and it's like, okay, she's that auteur female director, who's kind of who's kind of leading the foreground or the forefront in terms of actually getting Oscar noms in the directing category. Yay! Well done. Um, but I think you're right. I think this film puts in a whole new. She's yeah. she's got I, the box office money behind it, her now. Yeah, it's but it it'll change, and it's already. I mean, with her, it was already on that trajectory. But now people will go see her film. More and more people, it'll be in the same conversation. Obviously, Nolan's got a lot of more time on her, but mm. it'll be like people will want to go see a, a Greta Gerwig film. Like, I, that'll I think be a huge the, part of the audience has already done it just for this film. Yeah. But I think to that's, see it, the Greta that's the film. proof of it. Like, I, you said Narnia, and I was like, oh, man, I really do like that first Narnia film. But mm. I would love to see her depiction of a CS, like that fantastical. I wish it was something that I've never heard of before, but mm. beggars can't be choosers. <laughs> can't believe they're going to remake Narnia like only 10 years out. That's yeah. crazy. But then then again, I'm thinking, it's like, well, Little Women was an adaptation. Obviously, Barbie is an adaptation of a, of a doll. But yeah. So it's like she's she's it's kind of her proving ground lately. Yes. And of course, Noel Bombard gives her a lot of acting work in his. Film. Well, then again, White Noise was an adaptation as well. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, no, but I I just wanted to make that point about Margot Robbie because it's like she's gone from I mean the simplest way to put it, she's gone from the blonde bombshell that men love to look at into this film where she's the blonde bombshell that women can aspire to, and I mean that's such a fantastic trajectory for her to have gone on in these ten years. And Ryan Gosling proved why he is the superior Ryan once again. <laughs> He's I, literally amazing. I literally, I'm, I just, I think there is no argument. I walk out every time and I'm like, he is the better Ryan. Sorry, Ryan Reynolds, but I think he's just something about him is more authentic and fun. And do you think Ryan uh, Reynolds was authentic and free guy? Oh yeah, it was great. <laughs> I love him playing the same person and everything, and having a bajillion dollars and and saying how much he loves his wife so much i don't i just don't buy it i just he just seems dis- <laughs> i seriously and it, it, it might be my hottest take on this show's history i genuinely think he is the most disingenuous and i hope 
one day. I've heard rumors that he's a dick. Yeah, that doesn't, that makes sense to me. Like, he just seems genuinely disingenuous, whereas Ryan Gosling just seems chill. Now, look, disingenuously genuous. We just seems like Genuine, a bit say. of an awkward, kind of quiet person. That's mm. a bit silly, um, but you know, I, I I think what Ryan Gosling's done with his career, he went from being just this good-looking guy that was stoic and a bit like only in those romancey films, and then he went and did a bunch of angsty sort of your drive, your place beyond the pines, where he's mm. the quiet, solemn, tough guy. Yeah, and then he goes and does La La Land, and mm. then he's fun in La La Land, and then he does a film like this, which is. 100% doing nothing but making fun of himself. Yeah. But does it in a way that's not like, ha, oh, look how funny I'm being, but in a way that is just being directed probably in the right direction. Mm. Like, I think his nuances are, are encouraged, but she, I think having that sort of... It would be interesting to see what the directing was like with this film, how much of what we got was from Gerwig's direction or if there was allowed that, you know, how we were talking about right. Little Miss Sunshine, was there a lot of comedic uh, freeway, like yeah. free, like, but it felt quite, everyone was playing certain characters, very regimented, very acutely. It felt like the it was deliberate, not very, uh, well, there was not a lot of ad lib. Like right. Ad-lib. Did it feel like there was a lot of ad lib? I, I would be surprised. I'm trying to think of a scene that felt ad libbed. I actually, I, no, I'd say a lot of it was to the script. But yeah, I I don't I think I think I mean Ryan Gosling he succeeds in this film because he, he breaks free from any form of insecurity. Yeah. Like that there is no no shame in what he's doing here and that's what makes it work. I mean, that's a great piece of direction I remember hearing. I don't remember where I heard it from, if it was locally or on a video or whatever. Um where someone was meant to be very scared in a scene. And they're they're not a very experienced actor, and they're kind of like afraid to go too far with being scared, and and just that direction of you know if if you don't free yourself of this insecurity, that's what's going to make you look like a fool. You just have to commit to it, to being scared, or in the case of being Ryan Gosling, a, a five year old in an adult's body. Yeah, <laughs> he was enough for me. He was enough. Zeke, what's yeah. your highlight scene? You've been so teasing he, it. Yeah, I was. Honestly, it was that scene when Barbie's just been uh, screamed at, um, yeah, and is sitting on that uh, on that park bench. Um, I think it was actually before then, but it was a moment where she's sitting on the bench. Yeah, it was. It was actually before she got yelled at, and yeah, because that's where she has the idea to go to the school. Yeah, um, and she's sort of a little confused. She's looking for like um, Gloria's daughter and is trying to work out what's happened. Has just sent mm. Ken off to. Uh, go figure out basically where to find this place that they're going to. And obviously yep. he gets sucked into his patriarchal He's allowed world. to leave. Yeah, he's allowed <laughs> to leave. Um, and it's such a quiet moment where she's just taking in the world and feeling emotion for the first time. Mm. And it's a moment that I think it's one of those quiet moments. We've just had this bombastic... Um, first 30 minutes of this film, 35 minutes where yep. we've been in the Barbie world. They've done the crazy montage where they've gone to the real world. They've then done a bunch of silly things that have got them arrested a couple of times. Yep. And, um, it's comical and, and full balls to the wall. Mm. And then it just stops. Yeah. And it's a moment where she has this emotional 
renaissance where she's allowed to as you were saying just acutely before was to break free Mm. and what i loved about it was how many things she was seeing and it was that ability and i think it came back to yeah that thesis statement at the end of of how we don't take in the real world and we don't see all the emotions of people and it's that ability of real deep listening you know yeah you could say five things but by the second thing you're already thinking in your own you're having that you know, there's three conversations that happen when you and I talk to each other. The mm-hmm. one that's going on in your head, the one that's going on in my head, and the one that's actually coming out that's of our mouth. That's being verbalized, yeah. Um, and it's really interesting because that, that is that moment where she takes it and obviously sees um, this elderly lady on the bench and just says she's beautiful mm. just because of her perfect imperfections. And I, I was such a powerful scene that does everything, I think. It does yeah. sort of the real optimism that is actually underlying all of this film um, in identity and self that makes the film, for me, not this... Why it's such a great, empowering film, really for everyone, mm. whether it's in understanding um, the plight of the 21st century woman in that, like you said, that a massive... The hypocrisies of identity that come with them and and then the loving of oneself and then, yeah, the loving of everyone else around you, that mm. you're all just in the same mess together. <laughs> well, there's that, there's that juxtaposition because not only is she looking at all the trees and the branches, but then she sees, I think the kids that are just sort of playing, um, you know, very cutely. And then she sees the sad, lonely man by himself. And just those juxtapositions of emotions, at least to her first tier, which she doesn't understand what that is. She's like, ew, icky. Um, but then calling the girl beautiful and then her response is, I think I know, yeah. or is something like that. It's just that little, yeah, you're right, just a very quiet moment. It's her first positive interaction with the real world Yeah. in that moment. And it's funny you say that because that was literally my highlight scene as well. Yeah, and part of the reason as, as well was that I read that that was the one scene Mattel wanted to cut from the film. And Greta Gerwig said no. Yeah. Absolutely not. <laughs> That's right, Greta. We like the scene that yes, you. Yes, let's go. That's how we know it was you. I'll give it. A sh- I'll give a couple other scenes a shout out. I love the when the when that van drives up onto the beach to like attend to Ken, and then it opens up and it's basically its own little set yeah, within a set. Was... That's brilliant. That was so good. And also the depressed Barbie commercial that cuts in, I guess, towards the third act. The, the that film, was funny. <laughs> honestly, the two things that I will say that the film was just shining... Well, it was probably a bunch of things. The only things, like I said, I've already said my hesitations and things I weren't that sure. keen on, but my God, the comedy, it was actually... It was a genuinely funny film. Oh, we were dying laughing the whole time. Like... Our row, at least. <laughs> I, you know what? My cinema was the same. I think yeah? Luce and I were the only ones laughing. Oh, what's wrong, people? Opening day. They're not even. They're not even. This is the thing. The optimism in the world. The pessimism creeps in. <laughs> the optimism is coming out. And yes, um, I'm really glad that that scene resonated with you too. Um, yeah. No, it's, you're right. It's just the perfect like the suddenness of just slowly taking it all in. Yeah, it's beautiful. And if you have those moments, there's genuinely you know, as someone who goes on the train every day, you get those mm. moments. Yeah, it's sometimes hard to look up and just look at people. It can be quite an interesting and enriching experience. I, too. I had that because I don't take public transport very often, but I did recently with the the footy game, yeah. and I, my car was up north, so I got in the train. It was a completely packed train, and just 
being surrounded by people in silence, and it's it's so crammed, I'm not even going to bother to try and grab my phone out of my pocket. Just, yeah, you're observing everyone behind you and just the complete juxtaposition of emotions. Everyone's going through so many different things all at once. And it's so, it's just interesting. Mm. Yeah, so I, 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 that is a real sort of human experience that she was going through in that moment. So I'm glad Greta fought to keep it in the cup. No worries. Well, Barbie is currently out in cinemas mm. near you. Well, speaking of those cinemas, Jake, what's new to cinemas and streaming platforms this week? There's quite a few interesting ones, actually. So I talked about Missing a few weeks ago. I think it was episode 229. Yes. Right, so the, the spiritual successor to Searching, which was also a great film. That comes to Prime this week. Very exciting. Very exciting. Um, I already talked about Futurama coming to Disney Plus this week, as well as a new Disney original film, The Slumber Party, which uh, is literally just The Hangover, but with teenagers. Ah. They're hypnotized, not roofied. That's the, that's the, <laughs> that's the one difference, Zeke. Uh, you got Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, coming to both Netflix and Binge. Obviously, we heard great things about that when that came mm. to cinemas uh, late last year. You also got uh, Miraculous, Ladybug, and Cat Noir the Movie. What on earth? I've it's seen cosplays odd. of this. The Ladybird character with the red polka dot i don't i don't know um also coming to netflix is happiness for beginners which sees as i mentioned earlier ellie kemper of the office fame as a recently divorced woman put through a wilderness experience maybe she finds love yeah wilderness who knows uh tar comes to binge we talked about that episode 212 we did as our main discussion as well as a few documentaries including the later years the elvis presley special search for the last unicorn which is actually in reference to a species of rhinoceros that was declared distinct in 2018. Ooh, maybe they're still around. And last but not least, After the Bite, which sees locals and vacationers of Cape Cod against a new wave of sharks. So a lot of docos coming to binge this week. And finally coming to cinemas, we have Sisu, S-I-S-U, which sees a solitary prospector during World War II cross paths with Nazis interested in stealing his gold, and they soon realize they're messing with no ordinary miner. Oh. The trailer says, who doesn't like blowing up Nazis? <laughs> Did this play ahead of one of the played, movies you saw? played on something. I can't remember. Oh, I think it was on YouTube. It was like, oh, it was like a... Okay, I see. A YouTube ad, yeah. Uh, fair enough. I watched it, and it was like, yeah. Sort of like one of those films, a gory B movie. Yeah, I I read it's Inglorious Bastards meets Mad Max. Yeah, that sounds correct. Yeah, cool. Well, that's coming to cinemas. We got Rachel's Farm. I think that's exclusively coming to Luna this week. It's an uplifting documentary, fresh from this year's Sydney Film Festival, about the director actor setting out to regenerate her northern be- northern beef farm. Is that right, northern beef farm, with the help of her neighbors and other experts. Yeah, and also Ace Twenty Four's "Talk to Me," which I talked about last week, goes wide this week. Very nice, very nice. But that's everything coming to streaming. Is nothing too crazy coming to cinemas to compete against uh, Oppenheimer, Op- Bar- Barbenheimer. Oh, Zeke, I apologize. That's okay. I don't actually know what we're going to be watching next week on the show, but you do, oh, Jake. No. So what are we watching? Oh, I, I guess I will tell you then, Zeke. <laughs> next week we're completing our Barbenheimer mission with Oppenheimer.
imagine a future. And our imaginings horrify us. They won't fear it. Until they understand it. And they won't understand it. Until they've used it. Theory will take you only so far. The story of J. Robert Oppenheimer's role in the development of the atomic bomb during World War II. Who'd have thought that was the movie we were going to do I next know, week? I know. Unbelievable. Had to do one first. Sorry, team. We've I never know. done a double feature. We never will. <laughs> um, and we never will. No, God, can you imagine how long the episode would be? We have to do both. I know. We're well over. This is pretty close to our longest episode ever. Jeez. Sorry, and if guys. we end it right this second, it won't be. Well, to be honest, there's not too much to talk about, apart from the fact that, yes, Killian Murphy has never been nominated for an Oscar, so we'll find out. Has he out. really not? Nope, not that I could see. Oh, wow, well, there you go. Kind of makes sense. I mean, he was an ensemble cast member in other Nolan films. Yes. Um, Danny Boyle is the main character in Sunshine, but... Um, He's in he 28, 28 Days, days okay. later. Um, or weeks, whichever one it is. Which is also, isn't that also Danny Boyle? 28 Days Later? No. Yes. Yes. No. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and obviously Peaky Blinders, which I did start mm. watching season five. Oh, nice. Ten minutes before coming on over here. Oh. So. <laughs> um, did I call you as soon as you hit play on the... Yeah, pretty much, essentially. Oh, good. Um, but that's okay. Um, who doesn't love a bit of Killian Murphy? Oh, I know. Especially Killian Murphy looking really distressed for three hours straight on a giant IMAX screen. Yes. I'm ready to be blinded. I'm ready to go deaf. We but should I'm... clarify, we've both seen the film already. Yes. But uh, I'm glad we got a little extra time to dissect that one because it's dense. Yeah, lots to do in that one. But until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Starship Podcast. I was Z. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. the right one this time it was a delayed one though technically it's the light first and then it's the noise after oh uh, but you can't we, we make... don't have the visual no i can't do that ah oh, my eyes <laughs>